This is Skywave Audio Theater. I'm your host, Norman Gilliland. Across the Detroit River in Windsor, Ontario, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon and his dog, Yukon King, represented the Queen's Law in the wilds of the Gold Country. Sometimes that meant getting into the private lives of the people in the far northwest. As Preston, Paul Sutton had a voice that radiated calm and confidence even when the explosives came into play. It sounds innocent enough, the dance at Caribou Creek, but where gold is involved, treachery cannot be far behind. This is the Challenge of the Yukon from December 5th, 1949. Now, as gunshots echo across the windswept, snow-covered reaches of the wild northwest, Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice, the breakfast cereal shot from guns, present the Challenge of the Yukon. It's Yukon King, swiftest and strongest lead dog of the Northwest, blazing the trail for Sergeant Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police in his relentless pursuit of lawbreakers. On King, on your huskies! Gold, gold discovered in the Yukon, a stampede to the Klondike in the wild race for riches, back to the days of the gold rush, with Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice bringing you the adventures of Sergeant Preston and his wonder dog, Yukon King, as they meet the challenge of the Yukon. Like skyrockets that shoot into the night, now you see them. Now you don't. Yes, when you pour out a bowlful of swell-tasting Quaker-puffed wheat or Quaker-puffed rice for breakfast, add milk or cream and your favorite fruit, now you see them, now you don't. So crisp, so tender, so tempting, they disappear in a flash. Mm Mmm-mm. For luscious, nut-like flavor, you just can't beat rice or wheat shot from guns. They're the one and only Quaker-puffed rice and Quaker-puffed wheat that come in the big red and blue package with the smiling Quaker man on the front. Mike Foss was seated at a corner table in the Borealis Cafe in Dawson when he saw a man making his way through the crowd in his direction. There was something familiar about him which Mike couldn't at the moment identify in his own mind. But when the man stopped at the table and spoke to him, recognition was instant. Hello, Mike. Judd Sawyer. When did you get here? Mind if I sit down a minute? Of course not. Take a chair. Right. (laughs) Kind of surprised to see me. Naturally, I was surprised. When did you get out? Six months ago. And I didn't break out. Oh? No, no, I did my time. Got two years off for good behavior. I see. What are you doing now? Working for a living. <laughs> I don't believe it. It's true. I'm foreman in a mine back in the hills. So you went straight. Mining company thinks so. I want me to keep thinking that way. Then the company knows about you having done time? Oh, yeah, I knew they'd find out, so I told them all about it. Said I wanted a chance to go straight. 
They gave it to me. Well, uh, have you? <laughs> what do you think? Well, then what are you doing up there working for wages? That's why I came down here to talk to you. Yeah? What about? Look, the company's got a safe up there that's worth blowing. If you can round up another fella to help you, it'll be a small fortune for all of us. Judd, I'm no safe blower, and I don't know any safe blowers around here. You don't have to worry about that. We got an explosives expert up there who can handle that end of the job for us. I thought you said only three of us would be in on the job. That's right. You won't be in on the split when we get the dome. I don't get it. <laughs> this is a setup. There's a lady involved in this. A lady I'm mighty interested in. A few days later, Sergeant Preston and the great dog King approached the camp of the Klondike Mining Corporation located on Caribou Creek. Night had just fallen, and the lights of the camp blinked in the soft darkness. Instead of heading directly into the camp, the Mountie and his dog made their way to a cabin that sat well away from the others. In response to a knock on the door, their friend Carl Dykes, a young explosives engineer, greeted them. Sergeant Preston and King. Hello, Carl. How about taking in a couple of boarders for the night? <laughs> sure, come right in. I was just fixing up supper. There's plenty for both of you. Come on, King. Ah, hang up your gear on the rack over there. I'll get supper on the table. Thanks, Carl. I thought we'd be welcome. You're always welcome, and you know it. Uh, what brings you here, Sergeant? Oh, nothing in particular, Carl. Just a routine patrol. Oh, I see. Uh, say, maybe you'd like to attend the dance tonight. Dance? Yes, the first one they've had since I came up here Why, a year ago. <laughs> thanks just the same, but I think King and I'll enjoy your fire instead. But don't let us interfere. You go right ahead. No, no, I... Uh, I'm not going to the dance. No? Alice Wells and Dawson? No, she's in camp, but we've had a little spat. Can't be serious. I don't know about that, Sergeant. I think I should tell you about No, it. Carl, I don't want to get into your private affairs. Anyway, I can't take sides. You see, Alice is a good friend of mine. So are you. All the same, there's something you should know. While we eat supper, I'm going to tell you. I'll leave that to you, Carl. As they ate, Carl Dykes told how Alice Wells, the daughter of the mine owner, had been going with a new foreman named Judd Sawyer, whom he had recognized as a one-time forger. And I... I checked on him and learned that he served his time in prison and is now free. That's right. I know him. Did you tell Alice what you learned about Sawyer? No, I didn't, Sergeant. If he's going straight, I, I don't want him to lose his job. But I did tell Alice I objected to her seeing so much of him. Well, I understand that. Knowing Judd Sawyer, I doubt that he's going straight. I wouldn't know about that, Sergeant. He's a hard worker and he's done well here at the mine. But I think Alice should know who he is. Trouble is, I should be the last person to tell her. Is she going to the dance with him tonight? She didn't say so, but I, I guess she is. She turned me down. After I finish eating, I'll go have a talk with her. I hoped you would. She'll listen to you. I tried to reason with As her. As Sergeant Preston and Carl Dykes talked at the supper table... Judd Sawyer was conferring with his friend Mike Foss and another man named Joe Wade. They were in an abandoned cabin a few miles from the mining camp. Foss had just introduced Wade. You told me to bring another man to help me. Joe's okay. You can trust him. Mike and me worked together in the States. <laughs> we did a little time together down there, too. All right, now we get down to business. Yeah. I don't want to be connected to this job. Why? The reasons are personal. The girl? Yeah. I got everything set for you two. You'd have clear sailing. There's a dancing camp tonight, and everyone will be there. 
How about the explosives engineer you told me about? He won't be at the dance. How do you know? Because I'm taking his girl. He'll be in his cabin. Now, look. Get him. Force him to blow the safe. Bring him back here. But leave his tools so as it'll look like he robbed that safe. Why do you want us to bring him back here? I want him out of the way. Permanently. Oh, hold on, Judd. I didn't bargain for murder. Now, you don't have to worry about that, Joe. Just bring him here and wait for me. When we've made the split, you and Mike can beat it. I'll take care of Carl Dykes. After finishing supper, Sergeant Preston and King left Carl's cabin to call on Alice Wells, the mine ober's daughter. Carl Dykes was in his cabin alone when he heard a knock on the door. He opened it. Good evening. What get... What's the idea of the gun? Get back inside and keep your hands in sight. What's the meaning of this? Come on, Joe, and close the door. All right. Now, search him. Sure. He's not armed. What's this all about? Dykes, we have a little job to do tonight. We need your help. If you're smart, you'll do as I say, Savvy. Just what do you want me to do? Get on your heavy duds and bring along your tools. Tools? What kind of tools? Tools for opening a safe. That'll include a bottle of soup. He means nitro. Oh, I see. The company's safe, huh? Right. <laughs> now, get moving. We've got to finish the job before the dance is over tonight. Come on, he said move. Carl Dykes knew that resistance was useless, so he put on his heavy coat and fur cap. Then he picked up a small leather case and turned to the two men. All right, I'm ready. What's in the bag? You told me to bring tools. Is everything you need in there? It's my work kit, the one I use all the time. And let's go. Joe, you close the door. I will. Meanwhile, Sergeant Preston and King had been warmly received by Alice Wells. But when the Mountie explained his mission, he felt the air about him literally freeze. Alice, I thought you should know about Judge Sawyer. Frankly, I don't appreciate your coming here and interfering in my personal affairs, Sergeant Preston. I know all about Judd Sawyer. He told my father he'd served time. He did? Yes. He wanted a chance to go straight. Dad gave him that chance. Now you're here to hound him. You drive him out of his job and he might not get another. What would be left for him then but to continue his life of crime? I have no desire to cause him to lose his job if he's really going straight. But I don't think he has any such intentions. You talk just like a policeman. You policemen never give a man a chance once he's made a mistake. Judd Sawyer made many mistakes. I must ask you to leave, Sergeant. All right, Alice. I'm sorry you feel this way. Come on, King. <laughs> and you can tell Carl Dykes I don't appreciate him sending you here. Now, good night. Good night. <laughs> well, King, old fellow, looks like we've lost a friend. Let's go back to Carl's cabin and break the news to him. When Mike Foss and Joe Wade disclosed their mission to Carl Dykes, the young engineer said nothing to indicate his unwillingness to obey them. But he was thinking desperately, wondering how he could upset their plan and affect his own release. He remembered that Sergeant Preston and King had returned to his cabin, but it was too much to hope they would do so before he and his captors departed. In view of this, he planned to trick the pair. Just how he planned to do it never dawned on them, even when they reached the mine office and Carl began rummaging through the leather bag he had brought with him. All right, Dykes. Quit stalling. Fill a hole in the combination of that safe and pour in some soup. I... I can't do it. What do you mean you can't do it? I've forgotten something. I thought it was in the leather case, but it isn't. What's missing? 
I see you've got plenty of drills there. It's the uh, nitroglycerin. I forgot that I took it out of here this morning. Joe. Yeah? Look in that case. See if he's telling the truth. Sure. But keep him covered so he don't try any tricks. He's covered. How about it? See any soup? No, he's telling the truth. Dykes, I bet you left it out of there deliberately. Why would I do that? To stall for time. I have a good mind Now, to... hold on. You want this safe open, don't you? Yeah. If you slug me, you won't be able to open it. Now, listen Shut to me up. while I... Shut up. He's right, Mike. Let's hear what he's got to say. Well, all right. But talk fast, Dykes. There's nitroglycerin in my shack. If you will take me back there, I'll Oh, get no. Him. You're staying here. But I need nitro to open a safe. Joe. Yeah? You know nitro when you see it? Uh, sure. I know it by the smell of the stuff. Then go back to Dyke's cabin. Look around till you find it. Then get back here on the double. Uh, don't worry, Mike. I'll get it. I'll be back pronto. Watch out for tricks. I have a hunch this guy forgot the nitro on purpose. I'll be careful. When Sergeant Preston and King returned to Carl Dyke's cabin, they were surprised to find him gone. But Preston assumed he'd soon be back, so he made himself comfortable. He removed his red coat and hat and hung them on the rack on the wall beside his gun belt and handcuffs. He was seated before the fire reading a newspaper when he heard the door open. He turned, huh? Oh, I thought you were Carl Dykes. Quiet, King. Uh, Carl sent me to get something for him. Where's he? Uh, he was called out on a special blasting job. But he forgot his nitro. Sergeant Preston recognized Joe Wade as a man whose face he had seen many times on police posters. He saw also that Wade kept his hands in the side pockets of his heavy coat. His suspicions were aroused, and he decided to question this man thoroughly. But first, he knew he must get his gun hanging on the wall before the man knew what he was up to. Pretending cooperation, he said, Oh, uh, you mean nitroglycerin. I know where it is. I'll get it. As Sergeant Preston got up from his chair and moved toward the rack, Joe Wade saw the red coat, the broad-brimmed Stetson hat, and the gun belt. He understood what Preston was about to do and acted swiftly. Freeze, Marty. What? I have a gun in my pocket. It'll go off if you move an inch. And that's not all. I've heard about your dog. Keep him quiet or I'll put a bullet through him before he can move. Savvy? And if I don't keep him quiet? Then uh, you'll both get it. Take your choice. We'll continue our story in just a moment. Say, fellas and girls, did you ever go up into the mountains and listen to the echo of your voice like this? Yodely, yodie, Or like this? Quaker popped rice, Quaker popped wheat, shot from guns. Hey, am I dreaming? You're no echo. I am too. Why, an echo always calls back the same words. Oh, but I get tired of always saying the same thing other people say. Hmm, I suppose it would get monotonous. Now, if I could eat the same thing other people eat... I take it you already know that Quaker popped wheat and Quaker popped rice are the famous ready-to-serve cereals shot from guns. Naturally, an echo hears about them all the time. Oh, they're famous. It seems like everyone loves Quaker puffed rice and Quaker puffed wheat because they're so tenderly crisp, so nut-like in flavor and downright delicious tasting. Mm, 
makes my mouth water. And when you top these giant-sized grains of wheat or rice with milk or cream and fruit, it's a dish fit for a king. Man, oh man, I could go for a heaping bowlful. That's how millions feel about Quaker puffed rice and Quaker puffed wheat. And fellows and girls, the wonderful part of it is they're so good for you. Every bowlful gives you added food values of restored natural grain amounts of vitamin B1, niacin, and iron. Yes, for a nourishing breakfast that's super delicious and tenderly crisp and tantalizing, treat yourself to Quaker puffed rice or Quaker puffed wheat. Get both delicious kinds at your grocer's tomorrow. And now to continue our story. Joe Wade gripped a gun concealed in the pocket of his heavy coat. He had given Sergeant Preston the choice of quieting King or having King shot. Preston knew that King would spring if he gave the word, thus giving him a chance to get his own gun from the holster hanging on the rack. But the Mountie also knew that if he did this, he might save his own life and capture Joe Wade, but that King would be killed. Quiet, King. Leave him alone. <laughs> You're smart, Mountie. Now I'll open the door. Tell him to get out of here. Tell him. King, go outside, fellow. That was I say, boy. Go on, outside. Outside, you mutt. What's your next move? Get on that iron bed over there. Lie down on it. Come on, get a move on. You won't get away with this. Let me worry about that. Now keep still while I get your handcuffs. Both pairs of them. Joe Wade took the two pairs of steel handcuffs hanging on the rack with the gun belt. In a few moments, he had handcuffed Sergeant Preston to the iron sides of the bed. Then he searched through the shelves of explosives until he found a bottle of nitroglycerin. Here it is. Yeah, I can tell by the smell. Now, so long, Mountie. And if that dog of yours jumps me as I go through the door, I'll put a bullet through him. If you do, the shot will be heard in the camp. It'll bring someone down this way to investigate. Yeah, maybe you're right. I'll have the dog come back in here. Hicking! Hicking! <laughs> Not outside. Don't be too sure of that. Hicking! I tell you, he's gone. <laughs> so long, Molly. Joe Wade swaggered out of the cabin and slammed the door. Sergeant Preston was mystified. He knew that King had not understood when he had ordered him not to charge Joe Wade. He knew, too, that King had not understood when he told him to leave the cabin. But where had King gone? Had the great dog caught the scent of Carl Dykes and gone to look for him? This, Sergeant Preston knew, might mean death for both King and Carl. Meanwhile, Judge Sawyer, the mine foreman, called on Alice Wells to take her to the dance. Alice, what's wrong? Oh, it, it's nothing, Judge. I, I have a headache. I can't go to the dance with oh, you. Oh, you promised you'd go. Everyone's expecting you. I, I know, but I... Well, I just can't go. You seem mighty upset about something. Has Carl Dykes been making trouble? Oh, no. No, I haven't even seen Carl. Believe me, I... I just have a headache. Well, I never saw anyone cry like that because of a headache. Hey, what's that? It's a dog trying to get in. Well, I'll open the door and run him off. Come on, get, get out of here. Yeah, come back right here. No, no, don't kick him. Here, King, here, boy. Well, do you know this dog? Yes, I know him. Now, be quiet, King, quiet. 
King's a friend of mine, aren't you, fella? I see. Uh... Well, Alice, I'll go on to the dance by myself. I'm sorry, Judd. But have a good time, won't you? Sure, I'll have a good time. Good night. Good night, Judd. <laughs> now, what's the matter, King? You seem upset about something. Here, you don't want out. You just came in. All right, I'll let you out. For a moment, Alice was puzzled and then annoyed. Though she opened the door, King refused to go out. Instead, he caught the hem of her skirt in his teeth and tugged gently. Don't, King. You'll tear my dress. Oh, I'm beginning to understand. You want me to go with you, is that it? Go? Go? I wonder if Sergeant Preston sent you here. Judd Sawyer, the foreman, didn't go to the dance as he had promised. Instead, he circled the camp and hurried toward the mine office, where from one window he could see the faint glow of a lamp. Creeping close to the window, he raised his head carefully and looked inside. Uh, see the boys got here all right. I'll break the news to them. A moment or so later, he entered the mine office. Hey, what? Good. I thought you were going to the dance. Uh, what are you doing Listen, here? both of you, blow that safe and clear out of here as fast as you can. What's the excitement? Sergeant Preston and the Mounties is in town. Now, don't stick around here, because there'll be plenty of trouble when he finds out... <laughs> Judd, don't <laughs> worry about Preston. We know all about him. What are you talking about, Joe? Listen, when I went over to Carl's cabin to get... Joe the... Wade told how he'd gone to Carl Dyke's cabin, how he'd recognized Preston and forced him to run the dog out of the cabin, how he'd handcuffed the Mountie to the iron bedstead. So you don't have to worry about him. We'll be gone long before anyone finds That's right, Judd. Well, well. So the three of you are in on this job. I might have known it, Sawyer. Yeah, I'm in on it, all right, Dykes. But when it's all over, folks are going to think that you blew the safe and skipped out. Dykes knew all along Preston was in his cabin. That's why he left his nitro and sent me back after it. He thought Preston would get wise, which he did. <laughs> but I had the drop on that money. Joe, you made a mistake. Huh? You should have killed Preston. I was afraid a shot would be heard in the camp, even if it was fired in the cabin. After you handcuffed him to the bed, you could have put a knife through him. I don't go for killing Monty's, Judd. means a rope eventually. It'll mean the rope anyway when they don't find Dykes. If you'd have killed Preston, it'd look like Carl Dykes did it. Happened in his place. You're right, Judd. Joe, you had your chance to shut Preston's mouth and pin the job on this fella Dykes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, we're wasting time. You two get on with the job of blowing the safe. Be sure to use plenty of carpet over it and keep down the noise. Hey, Judd, where are you going? To finish Preston. And I'm going to the dance, so I'll have an alibi. See you at the cabin tomorrow. All right, Dykes. Get that drill going. Hurry up. You'll never get away with this. Shut up and start drilling. Sergeant Preston had struggled to free himself until he was exhausted. While he lay back to regain his strength, he heard King. A moment later, the door of the cabin opened, and Sergeant Preston turned his head to see Alice Wells. King raced toward his master, barking with joy. Sergeant Preston! So you went after Alice, eh, King? I thought you'd gone for Carl. Sergeant, where is Carl? What's happened to you? I'll explain later. There's no time now. First, look in the pocket of my tunic hanging on the rack there. Yes, Sergeant. You'll find some keys. Get them and remove these handcuffs. In which pocket are they? What's the matter, King? Oh, someone's coming. Oh? King hears them. Quiet, King. Quiet, boy. No time to release me from these handcuffs. Let him go. Perhaps it's Carl. No, it isn't. King wouldn't growl like that if it were Carl. Never mind the handcuffs, Alice. Take my gun out of the holster. Very well. I have it. I'll go into the kitchen and don't make a sound. King, go with her, boy. <laughs> Quiet, fella. Make no noise, either of you. Oh, Sawyer, I'm glad it's you. I thought someone else was coming here. Oh, what do you 
glad about Preston. You can release me. A man named Joe Wade got the drop on me. What's the idea of that knife? Preston, you know too much. Joe should have finished you off before he left, but he didn't. So it's my unpleasant job to do it. Take him, King! What? No! Look out for the knife, King! Watch it, boy! Drop that knife, Judge Sawyer! I'll shoot if you don't! Call this dog off! Call him off! I'm King! I'm Boy! On guard! So the dog brought you here, eh, Alice? Yes, he did. Now, what's the meaning of this, you. you murderer? Evidently, Sawyer's in on the robbery. Robbery? The mining company's safe is being blown right now. Get the keys for the handcuffs and release me. But I don't know. We'll tie Sawyer and leave him here. Get the keys. King kept a close watch on Judd Sawyer while Alice took the handcuffs off Sergeant Preston. Then the Mountie tied Sawyer and prepared for action. Meanwhile, in the office of the mining company, Carl completed the job of drilling a hole in the combination and fixing the charge of nitroglycerin. As he worked, Joe held a gun on him. When he finished, Mike covered the big safe with strips of carpeting. There. That carpeting will muffle the sound of the explosion. Now set off the charge. You won't get away with it. The monies will get you and you'll hang. Let us worry about that. You set off the charge. Carl realized that he was helpless. He could only do as Mike demanded. He moved to set off the charge. And then the door suddenly flew open. Hey, let where you are and don't make a move. Sergeant Preston, come here, you. Hey, let go, let go. With lightning speed, Joe grabbed Carl by the arms and swung him around as a shield. Try and get me and you'll shoot Carl tight. I'll show that money. The whole thing happened in split seconds. Before either Joe or Mike could draw a gun, Sergeant Preston rushed forward with King bounding into the room behind him. While Preston swung a blow at Mike, King went for Joe, who dropped his hands to defend himself. Then Carl was free to join the fight. Here's one. Here's another. Get this dog away. Call him off. Come, King. Quiet, boy. I got Joe's gun, Sergeant. Good work, Colonel. You two, get your hands up. We give up, Preston. We know Carl. what we think. Alice, how did you get here? I came with Sergeant Preston. Oh, Carl, please forgive me. Are you all right? Oh, sure. The worst Sawyer, he went to my cabin to kill Sergeant Preston. Thanks to King, he failed. Judd Sawyer is a prisoner in your cabin, Carl. Joe Wade and Mike Foss, I arrest you in the name of the Queen. An hour later, Sergeant Preston, with King lying at his feet, was drinking coffee with Carl Dykes and Alice Wells in the latter's home. Camp's going to be very surprised in the morning when everyone learns about the attempted robbery. Yeah, and they find out the whole thing was planned by Judd Sawyer, the foreman. The story I'm waiting to tell Dad and everyone else is how King came and got me. Why, if it hadn't been for King, both you and Sergeant Preston would have been killed. Well, everyone would have thought Carl killed me, robbed the company, and fled the territory. There's no doubt about that, Sergeant. Those crooks said they intended to put the blame on me. But thanks to King, they failed. What? Why, Alice, it's midnight. Yes, Carl. We still have an hour. How about going to the dance with me? Oh, splendid. <laughs> King, you and I can go back to Carl's cabin and turn in. This case is closed. In just a moment, Sergeant Preston will give you a preview of Wednesday's adventure. At breakfast time, if you feel like this... Oh, hum, same old thing to eat. Then do this. Rush over to the grocer's and rush back with a package of delicious, nourishing Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice. Then pour out a heaping bowlful, smother with milk or cream and fruit, and take a big spoonful. Ah, what tender crispness. What delicious nut-like flavor. Yes, a real appetite waker-upper. 
So get out of the breakfast rut. Serve yourself a tempting, delicious, nourishing treat. Quaker puffed rice or Quaker puffed wheat. Look for the big red and blue packages with the smiling Quaker man on the front. Remember, Quaker puffed rice and wheat are never sold in bags or bulk. Listen Wednesday when Sergeant Preston and Yukon King meet the challenge of the Yukon in the case of the return of Tom Beckett. When I met Tom Beckett on the trail, I almost thought I was seeing a ghost because Tom had been reported killed in action down in Cuba. There was someone else who was even more surprised than I. And that someone had a good reason for wanting Tom to stay dead. As a result, Tom was knocked out and thrown over a cliff. When I went to rescue him, the fireworks really started. Be sure to hear this exciting adventure Wednesday. These radio dramas, a feature of the challenge of the Yukon Incorporated, are created and produced by George W. Trendle, directed by Fred Flowerday, and supervised by Charles D. Livingston. The part of Sergeant Preston is played by Paul Sutton. They are brought to you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the same time by Quaker Puff Wheat and Quaker Puff Rice. The breakfast cereal shot from gun. Your best bet for hot breakfast is Quaker Oats. The giant of the cereals is Quaker Oats. Delicious, nutritious, makes you feel ambitious. The giant of the cereals is Quaker Oats. Yes, if you want to be a star in sports and school activities, make your hot cereal Quaker Oats. Because Quaker Oats helps grow the stars of the future. You get more growth, more endurance from oatmeal than from any other whole grain cereal. Remember, Quaker and Mother's Oats are the same. This is J. Michael wishing you goodbye, good luck, and good health from Quaker Puffed Wheat and Quaker Puffed Rice. So long. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. A robbery with nitro and a dance. That's an explosive combination requiring the work of Sergeant Preston and Yukon King. That was the dance at Caribou Creek, the challenge of the Yukon from December 5th, 1949. Despite his insistence that he had gone straight, Judd Sawyer was as crooked as Caribou Creek. Next, it's the Green Hornet. This is Skywave Audio Theater. And we'll go back across the Detroit River to WXYZ Studios in Detroit, which produced the Challenge of the Yukon as well as the Green Hornet, and the Lone Ranger, too, for that matter. One of the voices that was a regular in both Detroit productions was Detroit-area actor Rollin Parker, who usually played bad guys, but he did work both sides of the law in those stories. And in this episode of the Green Hornet, you're going to hear Axford refer to a real and recent event in the news, the crash of a B-25 bomber into the Empire State Building in heavy fog on July 28, 1945. The name of our story is The Voice, and it's the Green Hornet from December 6, 1945. The Green Hornet.
He hunts the biggest of all game, public enemies who try to destroy our America. With his faithful valet Cato, Britt Reed, daring young publisher, matches wits with the underworld, risking his life that criminals and racketeers within the law may feel its weight by the sting of the Green Hornet. Ride with Britt Reed in the thrilling adventure, The Voice. The Green Hornet strikes again. great excitement and turmoil at John Waterbury's campaign headquarters. The large suite of rooms on the 18th floor of the downtown hotel was overflowing with newsmen and campaign workers. This is sure a close race. Waterbury's in the lead now. Quiet, quiet, everybody. It's just been announced over the radio in the other room that Payson's going to speak. That's pacing now. Good. The returns for the past hour have shown a steady increase of votes for my opponent, John Waterbury, for the office of district attorney. His lead is such a substantial one that I've decided at this time to concede the election to him. Well, I extend my best wishes to Mr. Waterbury and my thanks to all of you who have voted for me in this campaign. Thank you and good night. Yeah. his private office down the hall to take an important phone call. Well, let's go get him. We want to Come on, do it all. What the? It came from Waterbury's office. Hey, look, smoke coming from under the door. Smoke, huh? Look. Hey, it must have been a bomb. How could it happen? Hey, let me through. I'm from the Danny Center. Suffering snakes. John Waterbury is dead. speaking. What's that? No, we don't know, and when we find out, we'll print it in the Sentinel. Axford! What's up, Cunningham? People are just driving us crazy, calling up and asking who killed Waterbury. Better get over to cop headquarters and find out... Oh, hello, Chief. Hi, Reed. Anything new this morning? Nothing worth printing, Chief, or I should say nothing we can print. Axford got some off-the-record stuff from headquarters last night. Tell the Chief what you told me, Mike. Sure. What was the source of your information, I guess? Uh, Sergeant Burke, Reed. Seems last week Burke got a call to come up and see Mr. Waterbury at his campaign office. Sarge went over alone to see what it was all about. Good afternoon, Mr. Waterbury. I'm Sergeant Burke from headquarters. Oh, yes, I'm glad you came over, Sergeant. Have a chair. Thanks. Uh, what, we, what can we do for you, sir? I'll get to that in just a minute. Yes, Mr. Waterbury? Have Tutwiler come in and bring that recording with him. Yes, sir. Who's Tutwiler? Well, as you know, I run a brokerage office downtown. 
Tutwiler has been my bookkeeper for years. Oh. He's helping out in the campaign by handling the mail here at campaign headquarters. <laughs> he's, he's a meek, quiet little man, but quite efficient. We uh, called him Tut for short. I <laughs> brought the recording, Mr. Waterman. Uh, good. Tut, this is Sergeant Burke from police headquarters. Pleased to meet you, sir. How are you? I'll explain, Sergeant. This morning, Tut came to me with that recording, which had come through the mail. It's a threat against my life. No. Yes. Probably the work of some crank. I don't for a moment connect with the opposition. I'd like to hear it. Have you any way... I have a playback machine right here. Uh, put the record on, Ted. Yes, sir. Uh, did you try to recognize the voice that's on it? <laughs> well, it's definitely not Payson or any of the speakers, if that's what you mean. Shall I start it, sir? Yes, let's hear it. Yes, sir. Just a second. There we are. I am known as the voice. My followers are ruthless and strong. My identity is unknown even to them, but they carry out my orders blindly. This is to tell you, John Waterbury, that if you are elected district attorney, you will never take office. Remember what I say, John Waterbury. If you are elected, you will die. I will fail. So take heed of this warning from the voice. There it is, Sergeant. Holy smoke. Shall I take the record? I'm taking that recording to headquarters with me. All right, Sergeant, but I don't think you... A threat's a threat, Mr. Waterbury. We'll study that voice and see if we can trace it. Do you really think you can, sir? Sure. All we got to do is find a guy who talks like that, and we'll have the mug who calls himself the voice. And we'll have men up here election night, sir. Plenty of them, just in case. Then you don't think it's just a crank who said that? Never can tell about these things, Mr. Waterbury, but it's best to be on the safe side. Just as you say, Sergeant. Tut, to give the record to Sergeant Burke. Yes, sir. Here it is, officer. Thanks. I'm sure you and your men will do everything to protect Mr. Waterbury on election day. That we will, Mr. Tut. Tutwiler is the name. Yes, so it is. Well, as I said, Mr. Tutwiler, we'll see that there's plenty of protection around on election day. You can bet on that. And just like Sarge promised, he had plenty of cops at Waterbury's headquarters last night. But Waterbury was elected, and boom, they got him in spite of all the protection. I'll say they did. About that recording, expert, didn't the police get any leads on it at all? For instance, where it was recorded? No, not that I know of, Reed. Well, let's get in my office. Yeah. Well, why are they keeping it quiet? Sarge says it's hushed up because cops headquarters are hoping that that there voice guy would think Waterbury didn't take the thing serious enough to notify the cops. So what? So he'd send another record. Meantime, they'd be watching at the post offices and keeping an eye on Waterbury. But no other record was received. Nope. I see. Well, what about Payson and his gang? Good morning, Mr. Reed. Oh, good morning, Miss Case. They ran a pretty bitter campaign against Waterbury. Oh, Sarge says they're investigating Payson and his bunch of course. But most of them were in his campaign office while he was broadcasting. Not three minutes before the explosion. And that office was two or three miles across the city. Yes, that's right. Now, sit down. Yeah. How about the bomb or whatever? Reed, I was coming to that. This'll really make you sit up and listen. Get to the point, will you? What's so startling, Axford? Well, as you know, the room Waterbury was using for his campaign office was one of the suite on the 18th floor of the hotel. Yes, I know. Tis the only high building in that neighborhood. Now, Waterbury's desk was backed up to a big plate glass window that looked out over the city, with nothing in the way for blocks. Are you really leading up to something, or are you just trying Wait to... Wait a minute, Gunnigan, and listen. The police investigators say if a bomb or something went off on the inside, with the window closed, the glass would have blown outward. Well, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. 
But all the glass from that big window was lying inside, on the floor. But if they say that it should be... Then again, what they say now is that whatever caused that explosion, bomb or whatever, it crashed through the window before it exploded. Oh, now I get it. Some killer just went by that 18th story window in a plane and tossed it in. Is that it? How do I know? Oh, All I can tell you is what I hear the cops said for. Can I tell you? Do. Oh, but Chief, what he says don't make sense. He's mixed up somehow. We ought to... Now, hold on, Gunnigan. Oh. What Axford just told us does make sense, as far as it goes. Sure, that's right. What crashed through the window and how it was made to do so is, of course, quite a mystery. That's just what the inspector said at cops headquarters, Reed. <laughs> Next, they'll be saying it was a plane out of control like the one that bumped into the Empire State Building. Only this plane came right through the window and blew up in Waterbury's face. If you don't like what uh, they say, Gunningham, call them up and tell them. Don't take it out on me. Axford, forget it. Where's that record, the one that Burke told you? Uh, sure, they have it at headquarters, Reed. I see. Well, you'd better go down to headquarters and keep tabs on things. And see if it can come back with a theory we can figure out next time. I'll bring the news as I get it. That I will. Yeah, but get it straight. Now get going. Keep me posted, Axford. Okay, Reed. That I will. And you, Gunnigan, I'll be seeing you later. What do you think about that voice business, Chief? Right now, I don't know what to think. We'll just have to wait and see what the police turn up. I'd like to know more about the candidates for the office of district attorney, Gunnigan. If one of our reporters could get a lead on that voice, it would... Oh, wait a minute. Yes, Mr. Reed? Miss Case, I want you to get me all the data on Payson and Waterbury and the men who were to be their assistants. Well, I can get that for you all right in my files. Uh, good. Is there anything Not else? right now. Well, I'll get that data for you right away. Look, Chief, I think you'd be wasting your time trying to get a lead on the voice. Frankly, I don't think the guy who made that record had anything to do with the explosion that killed Waterbury. Well, that remains to be seen, Gunnigan. Well, I'm going back to the city room. See you later, Chief. Here's some more data on Waterbury, Mr. Reed. Well, thank you, Miss Case. I've gone through all the rest, but it hasn't told me much. Oh, I'll get it. Mr. Reed's office? Casey, let me talk to Reed. Oh, just a minute. It's Axford for you, <laughs> Mr. Reed. Hello, Axford. What's up? Reed, I thought you'd like to know the cops made recordings of everybody's voice on the Payson crowd. So as to compare them with that record of the voice. Have they found anyone whose voice is similar? Not yet. Well, listen, Axford. Arrange with Sergeant Burke for me to come down there and hear the test. Sure. He'd be glad to have you, Reed. I... Hold on a minute, Reed. Axford left the phone for a minute. Maybe there's some news coming in from headquarters. And All right, oh, wait. I'll tell him. Hello? Hello, Axford. Reed, Sarge just came in and told me something that'll knock your hat off. I'm waiting. He says the chief of police just got one of them threatening records from the voice. I gotta go. So long, Reed. But wait, Axford, I... Uh, he hung up. Well, what did he tell you? The man who calls himself the voice has had another recorded threat. This time to the chief of police himself. Britt Reed went to police headquarters where he listened as the various recordings were compared to those made by the voice. Later, he stood in the press room at headquarters talking to Axford and Sergeant Burke. Have you confined your investigation to the Payson crowd entirely, Sergeant? Not entirely, Mr. Reed. But it's been determined 
that whatever it was that exploded in Waterbury's office came through the window from the outside. Yeah. And that big window is only 18 stories from the ground. That would seem impossible. Sure, it's impossible, Reed. That's what I keep telling Sarge. In spite of what you say, Ashford, the experts we sent up there from headquarters all agree on that fact. They know what they're talking about, Ashford. Okay. So they know what they're talking about. To my way of thinking, Sarge, you ought to get Payson and give him a grilling. That voice guy wanted him to win the election, looks like. You do your reporting, Axford. Let us cops decide who's going to be grilled. Axford, Payson may not have had any knowledge of what was going on. Naturally, he'd take support in the election from anybody. He's the type. Yeah, good thing he lost. Of course, we don't know much about Eaton, the assistant DA who will now move up into Waterbury's place. But I, I guess he's okay. I'd like to meet Eaton. Axford, we'll drive over and see him before we go back to the center. Okay, Reed. Well, thanks for your courtesy, Sergeant. We'll see you again. Come on, Axford. We'll continue our Green Hornet adventure in just a moment. And now, back to our story. Britt Reed had gone to police headquarters to listen to the recording of The Voice... He expressed the desire to meet Mr. Eaton, who was now acting district attorney, and suggested that he and Axford pay Eaton a visit. A short time later, Britt Reed and Axford sat in the district attorney's office talking to Eaton. I hope, Mr. Eaton, your office will put its full weight behind the hunt for Waterbury's killers. If you don't do something soon, Mr. Eaton, that their voice might get notions about you. I'm not afraid of that. Here are the papers you wanted, Mr. Eaton. Oh, thanks, Tut. Hey, now, I know you. You're Mr. Tutwiler, the bookkeeper in Waterbury's brokerage office. Mr. Tutwiler is now working here with me. He's my right-hand man. Tut, meet Mr. Reed and Mr. Axford from the Daily Sentinel. Oh, how, how do you do, Tutwiler? Oh, I saw Mr. Axford at campaign headquarters. He was there when... when Mr. Waterbury... Sure, uh, I was there, all right. I understand you were present when Mr. Waterbury received that record. Well, yes, I warned him to take it more seriously than he did, sir. I felt sure the voice and his followers were ruthless and strong. I see. Well, I'm glad to have had this talk with you, Mr. Eaton. You can count on the Sentinel to back you up if you follow through with the cleanup campaign you've outlined. Thank you, Mr. Reed. I'm delighted you dropped in to see me. Come in again. We'll meet again, I'm sure. Come on, Axford. That evening, Britt Reed went to his apartment where Cato, his faithful Filipino valet, and the only person knowing his identity as the Green Hornet was waiting. Police not find anyone who talked like the voice? Not yet, Cato. Now that the chief of police has received one of those recordings, they're making an extensive search. Who looked like the voice wanted Payson to win election and be district attorney, maybe. I'm not so sure. Cato, I'd like to have one of those recordings so we can experiment a bit. Records are being kept as evidence, no doubt. Yes. They won't let them out of their hands. But I'd still like to get one of them. Where they keep records? In a small room on the ground floor just off the fingerprinting department. We went in there to play them. They're in a file case there. Oh, Green Hornet not dare to approach police department building. The Hornet dares to do many things, Cato. When it's necessary. You take risk, then? What do you think? I'm ready. Let's go. Stepping through a secret panel in the rear of the closet in his bedroom, Britt Reed and Cato went along a narrow passageway built within the walls of the apartment itself. This passage led to an adjoining building which fronted on a dark side street. 
Though supposedly abandoned, this building served as the hiding place for the sleek, super-powered Black Beauty, streamlined car of the Green Hornet. Britt Reed pressed a button. The great car roared into life. A section of the wall in front raised automatically, then closed as the gleaming Black Beauty sped into the darkness. Meanwhile, at police headquarters... Cassidy. Yeah, what you want, Sarge? Take this list into the dispatcher's room. Have them radio the men in these scout cars to pick up every suspicious character in their district and bring them in for questioning. Okay, Sarge. What's that? Captain at the back. Down the hall. Come on, Sarge. Great day. What next? In here, Sarge. What's going on in here? Plenty, Sarge. I was in here matching up some fingerprints when I heard something in the other room. I opened the door and saw the Green Hornet climbing out of the window. The Green Hornet? Why did he come here? Well, get the devil from the chief. Quiet, everybody. What was he doing in there? Do you know? The top file drawer was open. He took one of them records of the voice. What? Shut up, all of you. Cassidy, tell the dispatchers to put out a call to all cars to hunt the Hornet. Okay, sir. I'll tell the chief about it. At least we know now that the Hornet's connected with the voice in his gang. And if it's the last thing we do, we'll hunt him down one way or another. A short time later, Britt Reed and Cato arrived at their apartment with the recording of The Voice. Put the record on the phonograph, Cato. I want to study that voice. Oh, yes, sir. I uh, start it now. There. I am known as The Voice. My followers are ruthless and strong. My identity is unknown, even to them. But they carry out my orders blindly. Shut it off, Kato. Yes, sir. You. Why you not listen to all of recording, Mr. Britt? Cato, he speaks as though he had written that down and learned it by heart. I remember hearing a certain person use wording exactly like the sentence in that record. What sentence you hear used? My followers are ruthless and strong. Only instead of my, he used his. Since he was discussing the voice. But that's not definite proof that he's the one. Uh, no, of course not. But it sets me thinking. Cato, set the needle back and start that record over. Yes, sir. Now do exactly what I tell you. And perhaps our experiment will disclose the identity of the voice. That man, plenty smart to think out a scheme like that, Mr. Britt. Someone else may have given him the idea, Cato. We'll find all about it soon. There's his home just ahead. That small house to the right. You'd better park in the shadows. Yes, sir. Come on. House dark. But I see cracks of light around shade of basement window. We'll slip around to the back and find a way into that basement. Then there'll be fireworks. Moving cautiously, the Green Hornet and his helpers silently approached the rear door of the basement. Opening the door with a skeleton key, they entered and moved along a passageway until they stood before a closed door, from behind which they heard someone talking. What do you mean by that? I'm just getting an idea of what he does mean. Wait here. I'm going in. Hey, what the... Hey, look! Hey, 
It's the Green Hornet. Right, killers. Quite a setup you have down here. For a bookkeeper, Tutwiler, you seem very efficient at building model planes. That's a fine job you have there on the bench. It's just a hobby. I I don't... I suppose the assistant DA has the same hobby. Is that it? What right have you to come in here? Or is he applying his knowledge of radar and electronics so your model planes can be radio controlled? Eaton, he's found out. I admire your cleverness, Eaton, but not the use you put it to. It was one of those radio-controlled model planes that carried the explosive into Waterbury's office and killed him. I admire your cleverness, too, Hornet, in being able to figure that out. But why did you come here? What do you want? Protection, perhaps? From me in my capacity as a... From now on, Eaton, you won't be in a position to give anybody protection. Eaton, don't let this criminal tell you what to do. Shut up, you. It's meek little crack brains like you that get the delusions of power at the expense of those who trust them. That voice business certainly wasn't your idea. It, it was Eaton's. He, he would had... have made you the fall guy eventually. But now both you of you... You won't live to tell what you know. A bullet from this gun... Oh, no, you, you don't! Drop that gun! My arm! Oh, oh. Now this will settle you! Look on it. You can work with us. We let Very you... Very clever, Tutwiler. Making the police think the voice was probably backing the opposition. When all the time you worked for Waterbury's election. But I say that you can work with You us. wanted him to win so Eaton would be his assistant. Then by killing Waterbury, Eaton could take over as D.A. You're through, as of now. Now take it. No, no, no. Gas, I... Oh, oh. Cato. You all right? Yes. Give me that record. Here it is. I'll put this there so the police can pick it up. Then you can phone them to come here and pick up these killers. When the experts from headquarters see this equipment, they'll get the whole picture and make these rats talk. following morning at police headquarters. I'm glad you came down with Axford, Mr. Reed. He wanted you to get the story firsthand. <laughs> he said he was afraid you wouldn't believe him. <laughs> well, I would like to know what it's all about and how you found out who the voice was. Reed, like I told Dunnigan, the cops got a call that the voice and the harlot were at a certain address. Yeah, and when we got there, Mr. Reed, we found Eden out cold along with a guy named Tutwiler who worked for Waterbury. Sure, and there was a lot of stuff there in the basement workshop. A model plane, for instance, fixed for radio control. That's how Waterbury was killed, Mr. Reed. Tutwiler told him there was a phone call in his private office. That got him in there so Zeton and a helper of his could release a model plane from a mobile unit nearby and send it by radio control directly into Waterbury's office carrying a small bomb. Say, come to think of it, Eaton was a radio technician during the war, wasn't he? He sure was, and he put his knowledge to bad use. That voice business was a red herring to throw people off the track. They wouldn't suspect a meek little guy like Tutwiler. When the cops grilled Tutwiler, he squealed all over the place. That he did, Axford. Well, it doesn't seem possible to me that that little man Tutwiler could be the voice. That's the surprise, Reed. Uh, put that record on and show him how it's done, Sarge. Sure, sure. Now, now, listen. As it plays, I'm going to gradually increase the speed of the turntable. Now, listen to it. Now, here, here it comes. I am known as the voice. My followers are... Now, listen, speed it up. Listen. My identity is unknown, even to them. But they carry out my orders blindly. This is to tell you, John Waterbury, that if you want to make a biscuit to Terry... Hey, that's something. Remember what I said? It's certainly Tutwiler's voice. If you want to... I don't talk at Eden's office. It's him, all right. I won't fail. They pulled a very clever stunt. It's clever, all right. 
You see, he recorded that speech at a faster speed than normal and talked fast at the same time. Then when it was played back at normal speed, it gave that deep tone to his voice. That's why we couldn't tell whose voice it was. Well, it's beyond me how you ever did figure out who was behind the murder, Sergeant. <laughs> That's something ordinary people like us can't ever do, Reed. <laughs> Anyhow, the Green Hornet helped him out in a way. The Green Hornet? Sure. He stole that record from the little fire room here at headquarters last night and left it at Tutwiler's place when he had a fight with his pals. The less said about the Green Hornet getting that record, the better I <laughs> Oh, Don't worry, Sergeant Burke. It won't be mentioned. We can forget that as long as you were clever enough to figure out the rest of the case. <laughs> clever people always amaze, Reed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm even more amazed, Axford, that so many clever people use their cleverness to commit crime. <laughs> you sure must be amazed at the Green Hornet, then, Reed. <laughs> He's a clever one, that guy. <laughs> I'm sure the Hornet would appreciate the compliment, Axford. That is, of course, if you heard you say it. Uh, maybe Axford thinks you'll meet up with the Hornet and tell him about it, Reed. Well, I'm afraid any meeting I'd have with the Green Hornet would, as a magician says, have to be done with mirrors. Ah, listen to that now. He'd do it with mirrors, he says. <laughs> Ain't that something, sir? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mr. Reed always has a ready answer to silly questions. <laughs> sure, and that shows how clever he is, sir. That it does, Axford. <laughs> that it does. <laughs> Radio dramas created by George W. Trentle are a copyrighted feature of The Green Hornet, Incorporated. All characters, names, places, and incidents used are fictitious. And a story worthy of the shadow that was The Green Hornet with the voice from December 6, 1945. In fact, I think The Shadow did at least one show where there was some skullduggery, some trickery achieved with audio recording. Bob Hall was the Hornet in that episode, and we had Rollin Parker, who sounded like the voice of Cato too in there, if you listened closely, and he did play Cato from time to time, the faithful Filipino valet, and he was as well in that episode, more prominently, the ill-fated John Waterbury. Bergen and McCarthy are next here on Skywave Audio Theatre. You would think that a ventriloquism act wouldn't be very likely to succeed on radio, being such a visual thing. Having seen them at a party, star maker Rudy Valley booked Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, his alter ego, on his show, and then Valley began to have some second thoughts. After a few so-so jokes, with so-so audience response, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy were off and running with plenty of laughs and a radio stretch that lasted 20 years. And they were radio's top-rated show for many of those years. By 1944, band leader Ray Noble was part of the show, and Don Amici, who was a leading man in films, also part of the show. In the vaudeville tradition, the Brigham and McCarthy show had a singer. In the case at hand, it was Joan Merrill, whose lush 
almost syrupy style may not hold up most of a century later. But here it is. The Bergen and McCarthy Show from December 3rd, 1944. Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, with Ray Noble in his orchestra, Joan Merrill, Professor Irwin Corey, yours truly, Bill Foreman, and Charlie's special guest, Mr. Don Amici. Well, Charlie, look who's here, our old friend Don Amici. Charlie, welcome back from New York. Oh, thank you. Gee, I'm glad to see you. Well, I'm glad to see you, too. Yeah, glad to see you, too. Yes, so am I glad to see you. Yeah, well, now that the preliminary lying is over, <laughs> let's buckle down to a real good fight, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Don, we had Jim Amici with us in New York. Yeah. Say, there is a nice fella, Don. Yeah, isn't he oh, a nice fella? That Jim is a fine fella. I think so, too. How could a character like you have such a nice son? <laughs> what do you mean, son? Yes? He's my brother. You don't say. Well, I do say. No. Well, he seems so much... Uh, uh, oh, never mind. <laughs> no, you're actually brothers. Why, certainly we're brothers. Distant brothers. Oh, distant brothers. He's in New York and I'm out here. I get it, yes. Son never sets on the Michi. <laughs> <laughs> Say, you know, this is just like old home week. Yeah. Same old gang. Same old gang, Don. Yes. Oh, Edgar, I haven't met Mr. Amici. Oh, of course not. Don, this is Joan Merrill. Oh, how do you do? Oh, Mr. Amici. Uh, really, Don Amici. Oh, Miss, Miss yeah. Merrill, I think you have just a simply lovely voice. Oh, oh, thank you, Don. And I think you're just wonderful in pictures. Well, thank you very oh, much, right. very All much. All right, they kid, Don. They Miss Merrill will now swoon. Is you is or is you ain't, my baby?
Charlie, what have you got there? Oh, that, Mr. Bergen, this is this is a bottle. Oh, I see. It's a very rare bottle. Mm-hmm. Handed down from one shelf to the other. Well, I must say, it, it's the most unusual specimen of glass blowing I've ever seen. Thank you. Where did you get it? Well, if you must know, I bought a glass blowing set in New York. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Then, then you blew that glass bottle yourself? Uh-huh. Well, yes, sir. I, I cannot tell a lie. No. I did it with me Bunsen burner. Yes. I blew two bottles, a finger bowl, and then I blew a gasket. I <laughs> Then I quit. Well, tell me, Charlie. Now, of course, I, I don't want you to reveal any of your secrets, but uh, how did you get all those little bumps, that hobnailed effect, all over the bottle there? Well, I'll tell you how I did it, Vegas. Yes. You see, when I was blowing it, mm -hmm. I, uh, I got the hiccup. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Now, if you'll excuse me a moment while I talk to Mr. Noble. Charlie, you're not thinking of selling this piece of glass to Ray, are you? Well, certainly. He's a collector. Uh-huh. Yes. And I'll tell him it's an antique. That'll bring the price up. Well, Charlie, no, no, no. Uh, no, you must not misrepresent. No? No. No. Well, I can say it's the only piece of its kind. Yes, you can say that. That would be true. I'll say that. Yes. Yes. Uh, if I don't misrepresent you, you won't clear the deal, will you, Vegas? No, I won't clear the deal. No. As long as you tell the truth. Well, I... It's a handicap, but I'll take a crack at it. Yes. <laughs> but if you start misrepresenting... Yeah? Yes. What then? Well, then I'm going to give you a signal. Yeah? Yes. Signal? Yes. I'll say... I'll say Dinky Die. Dinky Die? Yes. What does that mean? Well, that means stick to the truth. Dinky Die, stick to the truth. Yes. Dinky Die. Yes. <laughs> Okie dokie. Yes, all right. <laughs> Oh, Mr. Noble, I'm afraid that, I'm afraid that dinky guy is going to be restrained to trade. Oh, no, 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 no. Hello, Charlie, what can I do for you? Well, I have a bottle here, Mr. Noble, and if you know glass, I won't have to say any more. I'll be cooked. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me have a look at that, Charlie. Oh, mm-hmm. Tell me, is it, uh, is it an antique? Oh, brother, they don't make them any antiquer than this. Mm-hmm. Well, uh... Yes. Well, what yes. period is it? Oh, this, this goes way back. Dinky, dinky, die, dinky, die. Uh, uh, the period, it, it's the period of about... Uh, yes? Oh, it's the period of... Uh, dinky, die. Uh, dinky, die period. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> now, look here, Edgar. That's all very well. All the boy's trying to do is to tell me about this glass. Now, why are you confusing him? Well, all I said was dinky, die. Yes, I know. But if you know anything about glass, which I'm sure you don't, oh. you know there's no such period as dinky, die. Well... And Bergen, let me tell you that uh, collecting rare glass is a hobby that few enjoy. I get the insinuation. Thank you. It's a hobby that few are capable of enjoying. Yes, yes. And I'm afraid, frankly, that you're not one of the few. Oh, is that so? Well, aren't you the one? Yes, yes. I, know I think you've gone just about far enough for that, young let man. Yes. You. Let me tell you. Let me hit. Don't kill the sale, Bergen. All right, I won't. <laughs> Don't worry, John. Ray, I just happen to know a little more about this piece of glass than you do. I doubt it. And all I can say that is if Charlie will let you have this ancient piece at any price, you're lucky. Ancient? Yes. Really? Did, uh, do you mean to tell me that it's really that it's hundreds of years old? Hundreds of years? It's thousands old. Oh. Dinky die, Bergen. Dinky die. <laughs> <laughs> Several thousands of years. Several thousands. Dinky die. Oh, nuts to dinky die. Okay, okay. <laughs> Not yeah. the dinky die. Now we can work. Yeah. <laughs> that changes the picture. All yes, right. I must say, I... Charlie and I have traced this bottle back as far as the Ming Dynasty, haven't we, Charlie? At least. Yes. 
even before the soybean era. Really? With subgun. All right, oh, yes, yes. Too much. Uh, Charlie, you've got to let me have that bottle. Well, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, let me see. I'll give you... Oh, Charlie, please. I'll give you $300. Oh, well, sold. No, 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 no not enough. Huh? Not enough? No, 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 oh, wait, no. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me see it again. Yes, well, here it is. Mm-hmm. It's yes. a lovely thing. Isn't it? Yes. Latest thing in ancient. Yes. <laughs> it certainly is a most unusual design. It has been. Now, what kind of uh, shape would you call it? Oh, it's a sort of a rectangular purple. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 it has a sort of rectangular look about it. Yes, it All right, does. boys, well, uh, what's your price? Well, you being a friend of mine, Noble, I'll let you have it for, uh, uh, $500? No, sir, Charlie. No, no, not a penny less than 600 600 yes. Give me the bottle. No, you let me have the bottle. Let me have the bottle, Charlie. No, no, no I'll hold the bottle. Oh, oh, oh. There goes Stinky Die. <laughs> I'm sorry, Charlie. Yeah. Well, I... I guess we had it coming to us, didn't we? Yeah, I suppose so. Well, all I can say is I was practically a rich man before the crash. And that 
like your honest opinion of, of this tutor that I hired for Charlie. Oh, yes. Well, I tell you, Edgar, uh, supposing you let me ask him a few questions. Oh, good. You yes. see, I'll soon deduce whether or not he knows his stuff. Uh-huh. Call him over, old boy. Yes, I'll do that. Yes. Uh, oh, Professor. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Professor, you remember Ray Noble. Please. Oh, yes, yes. This is Professor Irvin Corey, world's foremost authority. Oh, how do you do, Professor? <laughs> uh, I'd like to know your impressions of Hollywood. I mean, you being fresh from New York. Definitely right. Of course, you can say what you want about Hollywood. And the people in the East usually do, I've noticed. Uh, Professor, how do you feel about the famous California climate? Oh, I do love the great outdoors. But I'd like it more if we can get it in the house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then, Professor, we can take it then that you're glad that you came west.
Those immemorial lines. Those lines that I shall never forget as long as I can remember. He wrote, Later, the same poet moved to California, of course. And now he is doing work in the fields of lettuce and broccoli and spinach. <laughs> and so, goodbye to the gay Rialto. Farewell, Herald Square. Greetings from the land of sunshine and white. I like it here. I like it fine, but the nights, the nights are getting colder. So won't somebody, somebody please send me that dear little three-room apartment of mine. I thank you. Thank you, Professor. Well, Ray, what do you think? Will he be good for Charlie? Well, I tell you, Edgar, I think, of course, naturally, like everybody, yeah. I mean, the, the point is so frightfully moot uh, to, to the average person. Yes, yes. Well, that makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> Joan Merrill, with the assistance of Ray Noble, give us the unusual treat of a sleigh ride in July. Was all 
you a present. Oh, Charlie, a present for me all the way from New York? No, no, I got it in Albuquerque. Oh. Well, you know, Charlie, no matter what I think of you, I can't help but like you. Yeah, well, I feel the same way about you. Well, thank you. Oh, we have had a lot of fun together, haven't oh, we? Oh, I should say we have, Charlie. <laughs> oh, dear. Say, remember when I used to do that character Gazola on the show? Yeah. Oh, my, that was funny. <laughs> well, that's maybe just an opinion there. I, uh... It was corny, but amusing, yeah. You uh, think that was funny? How about the time I tried to sell you those tickets, though? Yeah. Uh, that was uh, funny. When was that? Don't you remember? I was yelling there, hurry, 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 step right up, folks, and get your tickets here. Hey, hey, you, what's uh, what the kind of tickets you got here, hmm? Got some sweepstakes tickets? Well, hello, Mr. Gazzolo. Oh, no, Johnny. <laughs> oh, pal, Gazzolo. Suck if ever was one. Would you like to see a circus? A circus? Oh, that's a good. Tell me, you got any train of hippocomatomonomuses here? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, we got a whole flock of rhino monstrosities, too. Oh, yeah. And a herd of elephants. Oh, sure, a herd of elephants. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen them, too. Yeah. Tell me, uh, uh, you got some tickets for sale? Are you buying? You sell them and I buy them. You buy and I sell them. No reason why we can't do business. Tell me, how much is the ticket? Is it uh, pretty expensive? Oh, just a dime. Oh, well, that's all right. I'll take the wife and the bambino. I'll buy three tickets. Three tickets? Yes, yeah. sir. Three tickets, yeah. Just happen to have three left. Last three. Oh, well, I'm a pretty lucky guy, eh? Oh, you certainly are, yeah. Uh, you, you couldn't use a hundred, could you? No no, 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 no. I don't want you to be short, Charlie. Yeah. I only take three tickets here. Here's yeah. one dollar. Thanks, Gazola, and here's your three tickets. Goodbye. Goodbye, Goodbye Charlie. Hey, wait a minute. Huh? Wait a minute, Charlie. Where's my change? Change? Yeah. Oh, superstitious, huh? Well, our motto is the customer is always right if he's bigger than you are here. Oh. Well, here's your change. 20, 30, 40 cents. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, Goodbye, Ch- Goodbye. Uh, uh, Charlie. Charlie, yeah. hold the horse ready, Charlie. Uh-huh. Uh, you're giving me the wrong change. No, too much, huh? Yeah. No, no, no. no? You're not giving me enough. No? I'll give you one dollar. You only give me back at 40 cents. Oh, well, three tickets uh, are only 30 cents. I guess I gave you a dime too much, didn't I? Oh, no, 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 Charlie. 30 cents from a dollar? Well, let's see. One on the train. You can go on. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. You through yet? No, yeah. Comes out 70 cents the way I figure. Yeah, that's the way you figure. Yeah. Of course, you're entitled to your own opinion, but how do you figure? Well, I figure in Italian. Well, there you are. You forgot the rate of exchange. <laughs> well, never mind. All I know is that the 70 cents is what's coming to me. Well, what did I give you? You've given me 40 cents. All right, 40 cents. And the tickets are 30 cents. 30 and 40 make 
70 cents. Uh, what are you kicking about? Eh? <laughs> wait a minute now. Wait a minute. 30 and 40. Uh-huh. 30 and 7 and 3 is 70. 70. 70. By Jimmy Crackers, you're right. How we got this a mix up? Wait a minute, now. 30 and 40. That's a 70. You're right. Yeah, I am. You're right. I wonder if I cheated myself. Yes, you're right. But, Charlie, look. Huh? Just one thing here. It says on the little ticket. Yeah. P. Hay, heads and head. Fast. That means a free ticket, isn't it? Free ticket? Yeah. You paid for it, didn't you? Yes, I paid for it all right, yeah. Well, then it's not a free ticket, and don't let anybody tell you it is. <laughs> well, I guess that's the right stool, yeah, eh? Yeah. yeah. Obviously. Hey, Charlie, I'm... wait a minute. Wait a minute, uh, uh, Charlie. One uh, more uh, thing here. What's the matter? This is ticket that says admit one for July 4. That's a good day for holiday. You can see July 4. That. Let's see. June, July, September, October. Huh? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, it's too bad you missed it, Gazola. It was good, huh? Oh, it was a great show. <laughs> oh, it was a really oh, good, Charlie. Sit down, I'll tell you about it. <laughs> All right, I want to listen. Go ahead. They, they, had, they had a bearded lady, you yes. know, and then there was a fat man, and then they had one of those fire June, eaters. July, and September. Clown, clown. Charlie, I still think you're giving me the wrong change. No. It could happen to you, Joan Merrill and Ray Lowe. Hide your heart from sleep. Lock your dreams at night. It could happen to you.
is the Armed Forces Radio Service. Today, and maybe even in 1944, we might wish for less singing and more comedy. But that's the way it was on December 3rd, 1944. The Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy show with some of the stars that put them on the top of the ratings, Ray Noble and his orchestra, and an all-purpose guest, Don Amici. Amici's career stretched all the way into the 1980s. He starred in two big films in that decade, Cocoon and Trading Places. We're going to venture into the great outdoors next with John Steele, adventurer, here on Skywave Audio Theater. For several years, beginning in 1949, John Steele tapped into the adventures of friends and told their stories in low-key but uh, convincing ways. There was excitement in his tales of danger in exotic places, but no melodrama. Plenty of details, though, at least in the case at hand, backing up the convincing sounds. So now, meet a man with a dream locked in the icy depths of the ocean. This is Salvage, John Steele Adventurer, from December 6, 1949. Take one man with a dream and lock him in the icy depths of the ocean. That's our story, Salvage, taken from the files of John Steele, adventurer. Hello, friends. This is John Steele. We're back this week to bring you a really unusual story of adventure. This is one of those one-in-a-million tales that you come across once in a lifetime. As I've said before, these stories are not mine, but those of people I've met in my travels. This one happened to a man I'm really proud to know. I first met George McCready when I was in the Navy station in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. But uh, suppose we let him tell his own story. George? Like father, like son, they say. And that's the way it was with Billy and me. I joined the Navy when I was 17, and when Billy was through with high school, there wasn't any question about what he wanted to do. Only it was a good deal easier for him than it was for me, because his old man was a full commander when he went in. He had spent all his life around Navy bases. I kind of hoped he had picked deep-sea diving school so as I could help him along, but he decided on submarines, and I figured that was close enough to suit me. After he was through with his training, I pulled some strings and had him assigned to a sub based at Portsmouth so I could keep an eye on him. That's why I knew he was outside waiting that day, the day I was called over to the medics. It was comforting yeah, just to know he was there. report back from the lab, George. Thought you'd want to know the score. A number one, huh, Harry? Well, you're not in bad shape for an old guy. Eh? What do you mean, old? You were a chief when I was a second-class seaman. Yeah, but I've been sitting behind this desk for the last ten years while you've been out doing a young man's work. What are you working around to? George, we've known each other for quite some time. Give me the facts. Okay. Your diving days are over. Bad as that, huh? I'm afraid so. It's funny, I feel great. I know you do. That last case of the bends was the straw. Pump, huh? Well, the heart's a delicate instrument. It can take just so much abuse and then it quits. It was only a mild attack. I was over it 
as soon as they stuck me in a recompression. I know. I'll use a helium suit. Helium, nitrogen, what's the difference? They bring you up to the surface too quick just once, and that's it. Yeah. You quit now, and you're good for another 15 or 20 years. But one quick ascent, and I couldn't guarantee anything beyond a year. A year. That's all, maybe less. Yeah. I'm forwarding this report to the captain, George. He'll probably call you in in a few days. Thanks, Harry. There's still a McCready in the Navy, George. Yeah, thanks. What's dope, Pop? Not good, huh? Not bad. What do you think you're for? Nothing serious. Well, I think I put Wait a little... till we get outside. Well, square that hat, sailor. Oh, sorry. No self-respecting sailor. Sailor walks around with his hat cockeyed. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Skipper. What'd the doc say? Well, you see, us underwater sailors got some problems you guys don't know anything about. Like, uh, what's the estimated lead given a target moving at 16 knots, a half a mile range? Any young punk can fire a torpedo. Sure, that's why they make all the young punk submarine commanders. Just like setting off a firecracker. I gave that up when I was six. You couldn't stand the noise. I don't know what makes you fish jockeys so cocky. You know, I heard they made those divers' helmets out of metal to keep their heads from swelling. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, give me the straight stuff. What do you mean? What'd the doc say? He said... No, oh, go sail your boat. Come on. I wish I could fool you like I can your mother. Well, you can't. Okay. He said no more diving. Oh, that's a tough assignment, Skipper. Well, I've been getting a little sick of it. Like I'm few... sick of Betty Grable. I'm on the level. I know, Skip. I had to come sometime. Yeah? Probably lucky I lasted this long. You lasted because you're the best. Where'd you hear that? You told me. Well, don't you forget it. You won't let me. <laughs> Maybe I'll transfer to the submarine service. No, don't start that. They're either too young to know what's good for them or too old to care. Coming home for dinner tonight? No, I don't think we'll be back in time. Run still scheduled? We're shoving off 1400 In this weather? No, it's just a test run, routine stuff. Well, what are you doing here? Mr. Halsey gave me an hour of liberty. You should be helping to nail her down. All my work was done. Well, get going now. You'll be late. I'll be ten minutes early. Well, get going anyway. Okay. We'll talk about this some more later, Pop. Billy. Yeah? Not a word of this to your mother. You know me, Pop. Keep your feet dry. Is that you, George? Yeah, honey. Glad you got home before the storm. <laughs> Real Navy wife. Barometer's been dropping all afternoon. You pay more attention to that barometer than you do to your old man. Meaning? That. When you gonna grow up? Maybe next year. <laughs> Don't you dare. <laughs> <laughs> Saw Billy off the base this afternoon. Will he be home for supper? Said not to wait for him. Probably be late. And I got double chops for him, too. Chops? When do we eat? Supper will be ready in 15 minutes. Paper's in on your chair. Thanks. Radio. Ah. Al O'Brien was over raking up the front yard this afternoon. Oh, you shouldn't have let him do it, honey. I tried to stop him. Well? You know how he feels about you. That's silly. Long time ago. He can't help it. Didn't save young Al anyway. Doesn't make any difference to him. 
He says if anyone could have saved her, it was you. Just doing my job. Doing your job. You know you should have gotten a Navy Cross for the S-4. Cross wouldn't have made up for 40 men lost. Of course not, but you risked your life. Now, Martha... You did, and you should have... It's not important now. No, guess it isn't. No? You'll get another chance, George. Maybe. And when you do, I know you'll... We interrupt this program to bring you a special announcement. The Navy Department has just announced that the tender Pauling has rammed and sunk the submarine Sarpin five miles east of Portsmouth. George, that's Billy. Be quiet. Sarpin is believed to have had a crew of 56 naval officers and men and two civilian technicians on board at the time of the collision. Got to call the base. Further details will be brought to you as soon as they are available. don't get excited. We return you now to the program to which we listen. Listen, Martha, it may not be as serious as you think. Billy. All those men have been trained with the mountain lung. They can get out with an even break. Yes. Now, that's better. Now, we'd like to call the base. Line's busy. Keep ringing. Portsmouth, the Navy base. Get me, Captain Steele. I'm sorry, sir. I have orders not to accept calls for the captain. This is Commander McCready speaking. I'm sorry, Commander. My son's on that sub. Just a moment, Commander. I'll try to connect you. Go ahead, please. Captain Steele. This is McCready, Captain. Yes, McCready. Sorry, I have no news for you. No news? The Pauling stayed over her until her phone buoy came up, so we have a line on her. That's all I can tell you for now. Well, how deep is... There's over 30 fathoms of water by the chart. 200 feet. It's deep. We've alerted the entire eastern seaboard. Salvage crews are being rushed as fast as possible. Captain... Can I... Sorry, McCready. I've got your medical report on my desk right in front of me. I couldn't take a chance. Besides, the Falcon shoved off 15 minutes ago. But the Falcon's shorthanded with Sauron leave and me... We've done all we can for tonight. We should have help by morning. But, Captain... I know how you feel, but rest assured, we're doing everything possible. Yeah. Thanks, Captain. What did he say? Well, everything's going to be all right, Martha. All we got to do is wait. Why don't you try to sleep, Martha? I'm all right. You're going to just wear yourself out. Every time I close my eyes... Now, that's no way to think. You got to hope for the best getting light. Just lie down here on the couch. I'll cover you with a blanket. That's better. House is cold. Yeah, I'll put another log on. Have some heat in a minute. Can't understand why they let the Falcon go out without you. I told you. I didn't have time. They wanted to get that telephone boy on board before the line snapped. Probably send me out at dawn. Then why don't they call? You should be getting ready. They will. What time is it? Yeah, almost five. Clock's fast. Time for the news. Yeah, I'll turn it on. Clock and time for the hourly news summary of the news. The Navy Department has released no further information on the fate of the 58 men trapped on the submarine Sarpent sunk yesterday afternoon in a collision off Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Martha. The interest of the entire nation is centered on the small Navy base at Portsmouth, where rescue Good. operations were halted by darkness. Good. The Navy Department has been swamped by telegrams and telephone calls. Navy 
Navy base. This is Commander McCready. Yes, Commander. Is Captain Steele on duty? He's been here all night, sir. Can I speak to him? I'll try to connect you. Thanks. Go ahead, please. Yes, McCready. Sorry to bother you, Captain. That's all right. I understand. Any news? We know that there were 33 men alive in the control compartment amidship. How, uh... What about the men up forward? Don't know. The sea was heavy and the telephone line snapped right after the fog and got the buoy aboard. We've been trying to reach them by radio, but so far we haven't made contact. Captain. No, McCready. Couldn't I just go out in ten lines or something? I know how you feel. Let me go, Captain. Be here at seven. Thanks. Thanks. By nine o'clock, we were circling the Falcon, waiting for a lull in the gale so we could board her. At last, the wind let up enough for us to try a landing. Coast Guardsman brought her in close as he dared, and we jumped aboard. By noon, the gale was blowing out to sea, and around two, Commander Norton, skipper of the Falcon, was getting ready to put a diver over the side. Who's going down, Norton? Collins, Captain. Collins? Best we got, George. Well, he's never made a deep dive. Sour's being flown back from Lee, but he won't get in till tomorrow. We gotta get an airline down there. That'll keep the men alive till we get help. Where's Collins? Half by the stage. They're dressing him now. Mind if I talk to him? Wish you would. Thanks. Hi, Collins. Hello, Mr. McCready. How do you feel? Okay, I guess. Nothing to worry about. Sea's still rough, but we'll be able to handle you okay. Yes, sir. We don't know where the grapnel caught, but the first thing you do, unlock that grapnel and tie it securely to the sub. Yes, sir. You got to do just one job. Get those airlines connected. I know. One more thing. Huh? This isn't much difference from a hundred-foot dive. Now you just got a little more compensating to do. Keep increasing your air pressure as you go down, or the water will squeeze you to death. But don't get too much pressure, or you'll blow yourself topside like a balloon. I understand. Okay, kid, good luck. Mr. McCready? Yeah? Will you do me a favor? Sure, kid. Pin my phone for me. Glad to. Watch your head. Here comes your lid. Phone check. Phone check. Intake. Check. Exhaust. Check. On your feet, kid. I'll help you on the stage. Hang on. Put him over. Up, up, steady. Now, starboard. More. Steady. Hand me that phone, sailor. Can you hear me, Collins? Yes, sir. Reach out and grab that descending line. Right. Good. Let him down easy. Easy, I said. How's it feel, kid? Cold. As soon as you get down 100 feet, we'll stop the stage. Right. Watch your 10 take. Yes, sir. That's about 75. Steady, winch. Steady. That's it. Okay, Collins, off the stage. Water's hugging me. Take on a little more air. Not too much. Want to feel that suit against you, but no pressure. Better? Yes, sir. Now slide down the descending line. Right. Keep your free hand on the intake valve. Right. Keep feeding, a little at a time. Nice and easy. Want to do a good job, kid. Steele and Norton are right behind me watching. They want to swap? A little at a time. Easy, easy. Down. Where are you? Can't tell. What's your visibility? About three feet. Secure that descending line. Doing it now. There. 
She healed over? No, she's sitting up straight. I seem to be after the conning tower. Work your way forward. Slow, though. Watch your footing. Don't worry, we got your lines up taut. You using your light? Yeah. See anything? Not yet. Hey, did you say it was going to be cold? Just pretend you're taking your Saturday night bath. Yeah. Something ahead. Looks like the tower. Give her a couple of wraps, kid. Let them know you're there. there. Collins? No answer. Try again. Let's get that air into him. Right. Work around to the port side. Yes, sir. You find the high-low hatch? Water's hucking again. Take on more air. Yeah. Just bleed it in. Want to feel the suit? Okay? Yeah. There's a hatch. Work off the cover. How you doing? It's coming. There. Okay, sir. Now couple your lines. Intake to the high, exhaust to the low. Take it easy, son. You're almost done. It's cold. I know. Water's hugging. Better not take any more air. Can you work? Yeah. Okay, intake's connected. Try for leaks. Start your intake pump. Any leaks? Nope. Get your other line coupled. Water's pressing. Work fast, kid. Yeah. Okay, exhaust connector, check for leaks. Start your exhaust pump. Any leaks? Collins. Collins. Pull him up. Quick, pull him up. Holding, Norton? Seem to be, Captain. Hope they'll last till morning. Yeah. Bad break this weather closing in again. Blowing worse than before. Yeah. How's Collins, Captain? Won't be able to dive for a month. Where is he, George? Left him in the sick bay. He was resting comfortably. Any radio contact? No. You know what the litmus test showed? That exhaust air had 7% carbon dioxide. It's not fatal to 10%. 7 is over the critical line. They could just be unconscious. Yes, they could be. Then the fresh air would revive them. It could. Captain. Yes, McCready? I have to go down. Those men have been down there for 36 hours. It's 30 degrees Fahrenheit at the bottom. They'll die of exposure unless we get them out. I can't risk your life on what may be a hopeless mission. They can't hold out much longer. Sowers grounded in Chicago. The carmen put in at New London. Help won't get to us for two days. That'll be too late. Yes. If we get one hour of diving weather tomorrow, that's all I need. Norton? A diver's job's easy, Captain. McCready could do it blindfolded. You know what the medical report said? One more case of the bends I and you'll know, be... I know, I know. All right. On one condition. Yeah? When you get down, you rap on the sub. If you get an answer, you go ahead. If you don't, we pull you up right away. Thanks, Captain. <laughs> 
itself out during the night. By 10 o'clock, the sea had smoothed down enough for me to go over the side. The jump was easy. Attached to my diving suit was a hauling down wire. All I had to do was secure that wire to the center of the hatch from the softened. Then the rescue bell could slide down the wire and seat itself on the deck of the sub right over the hatch. The last thing I saw as I went over the side was Captain Steele taking my telephone line. I guess he didn't trust me to keep my end of the bargain. How's it feel, McGrady? Cold. We let you down easy stages. Okay. No point in rushing now. Yeah. I'll let you know the 25-foot levels. Okay. That's your first one. Right. If you start to feel dizzy when you get down, stop working till it passes. I'm okay. No oxygen jack with a helium suit. Just be careful. Okay. Measure 50 feet. Right. Start taking on oxygen. Right. Not too much. I know. There's 75. Yeah. Too fast? No. When you get to 100, take a rest before you leave the stage. If I need it. There's your hundred. Okay. Take it easy. I'm going on down. All right. Visibility's getting bad. Your line's free of the stage? Yeah. I'll keep calling your depth. Okay. There's 125. Right. Start breathing your oxygen. Right. How's the temperature? It's all right in the suit. Hands are cold. Okay. Watch your visibility. About 15 feet. Be less at the bottom. Yeah. Watch your oxygen. I am. There's 175. Slower up. Right. Head Collins out of 190. Right. You hit yet? No. Bottom. Take a rest, McCready. I'm okay. What's visibility? About 10 feet. Could be worse. Yeah. How's your oxygen? Okay. Keep my lines taut and moving forward. Right. She's still upright? Yeah. See the tower yet? Not yet. Take it easy. Right. There's a tower. Good. Another ten feet. Take your time. That's Collins Airlines. Okay. Give me a little play on my lines. Right. When I say hello. Any answer? Not yet. Try it again. Right. Not yet. Gonna bring you up, Mac. Captain. We agreed. But they'd have answered by now. Captain. They're answering. Talk to him, Mac. Yeah. 
Still 30 alive. Good. Got to work with that wire, Mac. Yeah. Just a minute, Captain. How are men aboard? Give me more slack, Captain. You want a cup of Give me more slack. Right. That's where she was hit. Near the hatch? Just forward. Can you secure the wire? Yeah. Take your time. You okay, Mac? Suit's leaking. Must have snagged on the wreck. Bad? No. Give me more air. Pressure will keep the water out. Hey, Captain. Yeah. Give me more. If you take any more, you'll blow yourself topside. I'll hang on with one hand, work with the other. More air. Still leaking? Give me more. I'll bring you up, Mac. Almost finished. More air. Got it, Mac? submarine sergeant. Commander McGreedy descended to the sunken craft against the instructions of the medical officer and at great personal risk. Knowing that his son was lost on the sarpent, he continued his rescue efforts. Ripping his diving suit on the damaged craft, he clung with one hand to the wreck while completing his mission. By his initiative and resourcefulness throughout this hazardous assignment, which resulted in the rescue of 30 survivors, Commander McGreedy upheld the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. For the President, Secretary of the Navy. Congratulations, Commander. Thank you, Captain. We're proud of you, George. Yeah. Is, is that all there is to it? That's all. Yeah. Well, thanks, Captain. Thank you, Mac. See? That wasn't so bad, was it? No. No. Hi, Mr. McCready. Oh. Oh, hello, Collins. Meet Mrs. McCready. Hello, Collins. How do, ma'am? Heard about the cross? 
Been waiting to say congratulations to you. Oh. Yeah, thanks, son. Doc says I'll be ready to dive in a couple of weeks. Good. Better hurry up. Got a lot to teach you. What's the rush? You got all the time in the world. Yeah. Of course, all the time in the world. Well, come on, Martha. It's getting late. Title, Salvage, the story of a man who made a deal with the sea and traded one for 30. And if you like Georgia's story, why not come back next week, friends? I'll have four people who had an unusual adventure on the steps of a cathedral in the big city with a man who left before he came. I like to call it witness. So until next week, this is John Steele saying... A life of adventure is yours for the asking, wherever you find it. Only, don't look for it. It may find you. Well, so long and good hunting. John Steele Adventurer is produced by Robert Monroe, written and directed by Elliot Drake. Jim Bowles was heard as George McReady. Also in our cast were Abby Lewis, Ross Martin, and Jack Orison. John Steele was played by Don Douglas. The orchestra was conducted by Sylvan Levin. Your announcer, Ted Melly. Remember, next week, Mutual presents Witness, another story of suspense and action from the files of John Steele, Adventurer. <laughs> This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. That was Salvage, John Steele Adventurer from December 6, 1949. The story was similar to the real-life matter of the U.S. submarine Squalus in which 33 out of 59 crew members were rescued in May of 1939. We're going to see if Philip Marlowe is as successful with his mission next, here on Skywave Audio Theater. Hollywood, 1949, a place as phony as a $7 bill, we are told. And if you've been around the block a few times with Philip Marlowe, you'll buy that premise. But amid the phoniness, you might find one genuine character, and Marlowe is going to. That character takes the form of a kid who sells the news, but never planned on being connected with it. The story is The Kid on the Corner. It's the adventures of Philip Marlowe, 
starring Gerald Moore from December 3rd, 1949. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time it started with a kid hawking papers on Hollywood Boulevard and moved from there to a house full of hate on a quiet street, a blonde liar on ice skates, and a corpse in a burned-out shack. And it all wound up right where it really began, in the heart of the kid on the corner. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Kid on the Corner. After a day jam full of heat waves in December, Actresses who passed mascara in Long A's office talent. And producers with glossy convertibles and holes in their shoes. The world looked as phony as a $7 bill. And when I finally closed my office, stepped out onto Hollywood Boulevard into the glare from miles of sheet iron Christmas trees on lamppost trunks, and watched a loudspeaker Santa Claus with neon reindeer trundle by in a cloud of artificial snow, I'd have gladly traded all of Hollywood, California for one quiet Vermont hillside and thrown my license in to boot. All of which convinced me that what Marlowe needed most was a martini in his own apartment, a good book, and a night's sleep in that order. So I started home after them, but only got as far as the middle of the street. It was the kid who sold papers on the corner. Mr. Marlowe, can you spare a minute? I've got to talk to you. Okay, Tommy. Let's get out of the street first, huh? <laughs> I'm not so good at dodging fenders. Oh, yeah, sure. What's on your mind, kid? That's about my Uncle Bert. Bert Larson. He, he's gone, Mr. Marlowe. What about your family, Tommy? Don't they know where he is? Oh, I don't have no family. I've been living with Uncle Bert in a flat down in Van Ness. Hey, if you haven't had your dinner yet, maybe you'd eat with me in the cafeteria, huh? It's it's real important to me, Mr. Marlowe. Anything that's important to you, kid, is important to me. Let's go in. Oh, swell. I should have known something was wrong when I heard him walking around. Late last night, you know? said he was after a drink of water, but he's got those metal plates kind of like taps on his shoes, so I knew he was all dressed, only I was too sleepy to think anything about it then. Well, maybe he just got an early start and he's been busy today, huh? No, it's not like that, Mr. Marlowe. Something's wrong. Well, what do you have, gentlemen? The pork's nice tonight. Stew's the best deal for the money, Mr. Marlowe. Oh. I'll uh, have the stew, please. Yeah, you better make it too, miss. Okay, a couple of stews coming up. See, when I got up this morning, I found this envelope on the dresser. It was 200 bucks inside, and this was written on the front. Huh? Let's see it. Dear Tommy, must leave town on business. I'll send more money soon. Be a good kid and take care of yourself, Uncle Bert. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. I spent all day trying to find out where he went. I checked everything but the airport. I know he wouldn't take a plane. He gets dizzy just standing on a curb. No luck, though. Milk, Mr. Marlowe? No, I'll have coffee, Tommy. I feel rugged. And there's a table over in the corner. Come on, huh? Okay. What really makes it fishy is that Uncle Bert's got no out-of-town business. Besides, he's never been out in front more than 20 bucks in his life. I can't figure it. Now, look, Tommy, if you're really worried, you don't want me. You ought to go to the police right away. Cops? Yeah. No, I can't. Why not? Well, Uncle Bert's been awful good to me, but, well, I 
guess he's really kind of a bum. You see, he's a gambler, Mr. Marlowe, a bookie. Uh-huh. Just a harmless small time, sure, but I'd get him in an awful jam if I called the cops. Will you try to find him for me? I got dough. I'll pay you whatever you charge. Don't worry about the money, Tommy. I got one lead for you. This name here in the back of the envelope. See? Yeah. Lester Carney. And the number 3,004 and a half. Does that mean anything to you, kid? No. I'd have looked that guy up myself, only you know how far a kid could get. Sure. Gee, Mr. Marlowe, I'm sure my uncle didn't leave town. It's something else. It's gotta be. He's in some kind of trouble. Now, Tommy... You know that he might be on the wrong end of it, don't you? Yeah. Well, if that's right, I I want to find it out fast, Mr. Marlowe. Here's a picture of him. Mm-hmm. Scared, son? Me scared? Nah. Not for myself, anyway. I... Yeah. Yeah, I guess I am, kind of. Well, okay, Tommy, eat your dinner and then get back to work. I'll see what I can find out, huh? <laughs> patted my new client on the shoulder and left the cafeteria. But I was sure of one thing. The dry rot that gets to most people in Hollywood wouldn't touch a hard-working kid named Tommy Lawson. Who was already smarter at 15 than a lot of citizens get at 50. I stopped in a phone booth and found the name Lester Carney listed in the book at 8110 Cherokee Street. That turned out to be an oversized California Spanish model that had taken lots of old-fashioned wealth to build. Halfway up the curving walk to the already open front door, I heard the voices. All right, Susan, if that's the way you feel, I don't want you in this house another night. Well, I'm sorry, Mom, but I don't think that spying and telling lies are a part of a maid's duties, so I'm leaving. But I would like to know about my back salary first, You'll Mrs. Carney. you get your back salary, my girl. Don't worry about that. Now get out. Very well, Mom. Excuse me, sir. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, what do you want? I'm looking for Mr. Lester Carney. Is he in? He is not. Oh, would you mind telling me where I can locate him? I don't know. And I don't care uh, anymore. Just a minute, just a minute. Is he with Bert Lawson, maybe? I don't know what you're talking about. Now get out of here. And good night to you, too, Mrs. Carney. <laughs> hey! Hey, Susan! Just a minute, baby! And who are you calling baby? Well, I call anybody baby when they're as cute as you are. Uh, you're not so bad yourself. Well, now that that's established, let's get friendly. I'm always friendly. But they're not, huh? Oh, there's going to be trouble in that house. Oh? Well... Good night, Mr. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'll give you a lift in the car. <laughs> Let me have your bag. Well, all right. Thank you. Yeah. Say, uh, what about that trouble you spoke of, Susan? What did you mean? It's Mrs. Carney. Julia. Oh. She isn't as pretty as she used to be. She's turned rancid. She's driven that poor husband of hers out of his mind. He almost never comes home nowadays. Practically lives in his studio. Studio? Uh, what kind? Photography. Oh. It's way up in the Hollywood Hills someplace. Susan, did you ever hear either of them mention a Bert Lawson? No. Why, who's he? A gambler. I gather from Julia that Connie's blowing the family fortune, huh? Sure he is. And that's not all she's driven him to. No. What else? What do you think? Another woman, of course. Oh. An ice skater named Carol King at the Igloo. That's that nightclub with the skating show? Yeah, I've been there. Does Mrs. Carney know? Oh, she suspects. That's why she wanted me to spy on him. But I wouldn't because I don't blame him one bit. Not with Julia being like she is. Yeah, maybe you're right, Susan. But then again, maybe you've got your cause and effect backward, huh? Yes? Well, I don't know anything about that. But that poor man's been driven so crazy, he's threatened to kill her. Well, here's where I get out. And stay out. Thank you.
I dropped Susan off at the car stop and headed out Sunset Boulevard for Westwood in a club called the Igloo, which looked more like a down-at-the-heel Taj Mahal than an Eskimo's bedroom. Inside a line of fast-moving ostrich plumes with rye crisp waistlines and imitation sable zipped over a short sheet of tinted ice toward the climax of chorus numbers. While I bluffed my way backstage and intimidated the call boy into sending over one Carol King. She turned out to be left end in the lineup out front, so I sat down on a cold trunk and waited until the curtain fell. And I got up to greet an athletic blonde with more than healthy face, who sidled dubiously toward me ice skates and all, and I introduced myself and told her I was looking for Bert Larson. Why are you looking for Bert Larson, Marlo? Well, because people say he's disappeared. Now, I know he's a bookie. You don't have to protect him on that score, and I'm no cop. Just want to know where he's gone. Okay. I hear he made a real killing yesterday, the first one in his life. Oh. I understand he's leaving town to retire. Hmm. Who's going to make book for you from now on? Nobody. I never play the horses. My friends do. Oh, friends like Lester Carney? Lester. Oh, well, now we get down to business. You smell like you're working for a wife, Shamus. Yes, again, sugar. I'm after Bert Larson, nothing else. That's why I want to talk to your friend. Where is he? Lester Carney is no friend of mine. You know, you should be smart enough to know you're just wasting your time with that pitch. Look, bud, he was my friend, sure, but that's all off, as of an hour ago. They're all through, washed up. I gave him the boot. Why, did he run out of blank checks? I ought to bust your shin uh, wide I'll open keep those skates that. on the floor, honey. Then skip the cracks. I threw him out because I got sick and tired of waiting. He's kept me on the string for months with nothing but promises. Said he hated his wife, but when it comes down to cases, he refused to leave her. Why? I don't know got some hold over him. He has nerve enough to break. So I wrapped him up in a neat little bundle and sent him home. It was a mess. I'll bet. Between you and Julia, he must be in a great frame of mind tonight. That's his problem now, brother, not mine. What is yours? How to keep your life on ice? No, wise guy. For your information, I'm quitting this show. I'm gonna make a clean break all around. Happy landings. But look, what's the connection, if any, between Lawson and Carney? Why, Mr. Marlowe, I have no, no idea. idea. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, sugar, that's where we'll leave it for now. But in making that clean break, be sure it's not your neck. I'll see you around. I had nothing tangible to base it on, but as I left the igloo and drove back to Hollywood for some reason, I kept thinking that Tommy Larson was right, that his uncle was still in town and in some kind of trouble. And I was sure that at least half of Carol King's story had been lies, but why I couldn't figure. And another idea hit me and hit me hard. I turned on to Cherokee again and drove up to Connie's house at 8110, parked and went in. There the vague hunch began to shape up like grim fact because the front door was wide open and spilling a pale glow from the one light in the house, the hall lamp. I saw the note propped under the lamp even before I went in. I left it where it was. It said, to whom it may concern. I have paid all my just debts, my affairs are in order, and since life has been made intolerable for me, I have destroyed that which made it so, my wife, Julia. Now there's nothing left, I shall dispose of myself, nor am I sorry, Lester Carney. And I looked up beyond the note and saw her lying at the edge of the circle of light from the lamp. Julia had been strangled by a silk cord that was still embedded in her swollen throat. I turned and started for the phone. There we are. Oh. So I got here a little too late, huh? Or is it too soon? My wife's dead, so what's the difference? You better stand still because I'll shoot fast. Who are you and what are you doing here? Name's Marlowe, and I assume you're Connie. All right, I'm a private detective trying to find Bert Larson. 
In the process, I got mixed up in your little fiasco from one end to the other. Bert Larson. Just a cheap bookmaker. He's one of the very few people who ever gave me a fair break. Where is he, Connie? Do you know? No. Does it matter? Too bad you bunted in here just now. The man's going to do what I've decided to do. It's a most personal, private affair. It's your party. But maybe you better think it all over again, huh? I've already thought it over. Thoroughly. Turn around and walk through that door to the kitchen. Go on. Sure, sure. All right. Stop there. Now, open that door on your right. This one? Yes. Years ago, that cellar was filled with the best wines the world had to offer. What happens? You pull too many corks? Find out for yourself, Marlowe! Oh! just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, will Tyrone Power listen to Jack Benny's siren song? Will Ty consent to portray CBS's great Sunday night musician and lover in the movie The Life of Jack Benny? Tune in tomorrow and find out. No, there's never a question about the quality and quantity of comedy and sheer entertainment on CBS on Sunday night. And remember, the Jack Benny show is heard on all of these CBS stations. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Kid on the Corner. Lester Carney, bouncing the private detective down the cellar stairs, had been rough on both the inner and outer man and my jaw was bleeding where his heavy signet ring had connected. I was back on my feet through the dusty jumble of barrels and boxes over to a grimy side window and finally out onto the street. I found neither confessed killer nor car any place in sight, which made my next step a return trip into the house and a call to Lieutenant Matthews. All right, Marlowe. From your client to Julia Carney to that ice skater and back to Julia Carney, now dead, I follow. But the why, I don't. Where's the connection between the newsboy's uncle and this guy you say is on the way out? This, uh... Lester uh, Carney, Matthews, yeah. I don't know. You don't know? You're not saying which, Phil. Well, maybe it's a little of each. Now, look, Lieutenant, I... Just a second. What is it, Marlowe? Hold the wire, will you, Matthews? Okay, but make it snappy, will you, Phil? Killer on the loose isn't such a good idea, even if he's promised to knock himself off. Might decide to take somebody else along, 3, you know. 3,004 and a half North what? Westmore. 3,004 and a half. I can't hear you, Phil. What? What? Oh, a, a piece of paper, Matthews, in a dead woman's hand. Oh, now you're fine. It's got an address on it. The same address that was on the back of the envelope Tommy's uncle left for him. Well, this address could be the connection I asked you about. Yeah. Yeah, the hook between Uncle Bert and the Connies. Well, we'll get right over there. We'll uh, Matthews, wait a minute. Let me try it alone first, will you? I, I think it's it'll play better that way. And keep the kid's uncle out of the police lineup that yeah. way. Yeah. Uh-uh, Marlowe, I can't. Oh, now, wait a minute, Matthews, please. I'm thinking of the kid. Yeah, well, I'm... Okay. a boy. Just don't make it too long till I hear from you again. Goodbye. <laughs> I knew that the 3,000 block on North Rossmore wasn't even close to the Hollywood Hills, which meant that the address couldn't be the dilettante photographer studio that the Carney's ex-maid had described. And 20 minutes later, when I was out of my car and standing next to the doorbell marked 3,004 and a half, I knew something else. Because the name underneath was Carol King. A light showed from someplace deep inside, and my leaning on the doorbell only proved that it worked. There was no answer at 3,004 and a half, but 3,004, the other twin to the duplex, was different. 
It featured a sweet old lady who shattered the illusion the second she opened her mouth. I suppose you're just another one of that King girl's friends, eh? Why, do I look the type, Granny? There is no type, young man. Miss Carol King entertains all sorts. Oh, which might include a recent someone who's gray at the temple, short, and maybe talks a lot about the ponies. Huh? How would I know what a guest talk about? Oh, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> look, honey, a woman's been murdered tonight. And that murdered? Ha- I knew it. I knew it. No, she wait had a to come to a bad wait end, a minute, but only yesterday Whoa, I told Henry hold it, that if that hold it, girl, Granny. Carol is not the one who's dead. Oh. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. Sticks out all over you. Now, look, what about that man? Well, he was here about 30 minutes ago, just the two of them, drinking that hard liquor like it was water and making enough noise to raise the devil itself. A farewell party, they called it. Oh. Did you see him leave? No, no. Henry made me come in then, and I... Well, I mean... (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. You missed it. Okay, Granny, now, look, how do we get in here without kicking the door down? Come on, sweetheart, it's important. There may be a body inside. Uh, uh, body? Oh, well, how awful. Here, here. Over here, behind this ledge. That's better. She always kept a spare key. Yes, yes, here it is. But, uh, you do it. I'm too shaky. You shouldn't be. Just think of tomorrow, Granny, and the news you'll have for one and all. The light switches is on your right there. Uh-huh. See anything? No. How many rooms here? Bedroom, kitchen, and bath, aside from this. Anything in there? No. You suspect foul play, all right, don't you? The foulest. Don't let it worry you, because... Hey, those photos there on the wall. They're taken from Mulholland Drive, aren't they? One by day, one by night, both in the same spot, the Hollywood Hills? Sure, sure. That's where he has a studio, that Lester fella. Yeah, that Lester fella. Granny, do you know where it is? I mean, Mulholland Drive and where? You know, that street runs for miles along the top of the mountain. Well, of course I do. I was born and raised here in Los Angeles. Granny, where? Mulholland and where? Mulholland, Laurel Canyon Boulevard, just ah. south of the intersection. Thank you, sweetheart, and goodbye. Oh, wait, one moment now, if you please. What's the matter? What's your name, officer? I know my rights. Your name and your division. Granny, dear, I'm no cop. Huh? I said I'm no cop. Oh, not a police officer. Well, then who are you? Just a passerby. A stranger in the night. Good night, Granny. <laughs> All the way from Rossmore to Sunset, then west to Laurel Canyon Boulevard, I kept worrying about Tommy Lawson and the uncle, who from where I stood, needed at least worrying about no matter which way things played. But when I was on the strip of macadam that twists its way upward toward Mulholland Drive like a snake writhing from a long, long bellyache, I forgot about both client and relatives alike. Because at the top and a little to the south, where Granny had said it would be, was Lester Carney's studio, all right, but burned to the ground. Sure, go fast, huh, Chief? Yeah, wasn't 20 minutes on this one. Hey, mister, where are you going? Some of that metal stuff's still pretty hot. Who are you, with the law? No, Chief, I'm a private detective named Marlowe. I was wondering if Lester Carney was caught in there. He owned this shack. Yeah, I know. Is he a friend of yours? Uh, no, it's strictly business. He's wanted for murder. Yeah, he was wanted for murder, Phil. He was burned to a crisp in there. Hello, Casey. Hello, Matthews. Well, what's your guess? He started on purpose? Oh, uh, suicides hardly ever burn themselves to death. No, no. He probably took some sleeping pills or poison and then a cigarette he left going did this, you know. Hey, by the way, Phil, you saw Connie tonight. You think you might recognize him? Might. Yeah, he's over there. There isn't much. Uh, oh, see you, Casey. Right, Matthews. Hey, Garson. Hey, you tied Connie and this fire together kind of fast, didn't you, Lieutenant? <laughs> I just found out about this place. Yeah, but you work alone, Marlowe. I got help. Oh. Oh, there it is. All that's left. See anything? Yeah. That ring. I noticed it earlier tonight. Uh-huh. And the watch? No, I'm not sure. I don't remember what kind of... Hey, Matthews. What is it? What are you staring at, Phil? Come on over here. Come you on. Know what? 
See this little piece of metal? Yeah. I think it's... Don't watch you! Phil, uh, you know, fire makes things hot. Yeah, yeah, hot things burn and... Yeah. Marlowe, what is it? It's an idea. Yeah, like what? Like this isn't suicide after all, like it's murder, Matthews. Oh. Come on, we gotta get to our phone quick. Look, miss, this is important. I'm calling for Detective Lieutenant Matthews at police headquarters. What passenger flights have left in the last half hour? Passenger flights? Yeah. Well, there have been two, sir. One to Dallas, Texas, the other to Chicago. Uh, both American airlines. Nothing out of the country? Well, well what are you getting? Will you wait you a minute, know, Matthews? Sir, however, there is a flight scheduled to leave at 1010. Uh-huh. That's just five minutes from now. Uh, that's going to Manila. Mm. Mercury Airways. Shall I connect you? Yeah, hurry, will you please? Yes, hey, Matthews, sir. this may be it. I'm glad for you. Mercury Airways. Central Dispatcher's office, Mercury. There's a call from the police here for you. Uh, go ahead, sir. Look, your 1010 flight from Manila, is it going out on schedule? Uh, yes, sir. The plane's standing by for the tower signal now. Oh, then tell me this. Is there a passenger aboard named Bert Larson? Uh, Larson? He's one the moment, please, killer? sir. Hurry, will you? This Larson killed Lester Connie. Then he's Will you the hold it, Matthews? That... Yes, sir. We have a Bert Larson aboard. Oh, good. Keep him there and don't let that plane get up in the air. Do you hear? The man's wanted for murder. But don't do anything else either. Just let him sit and wait for us. You got that? Uh, yes, sir. I understand. Fine. We'll be there as soon as we can. Goodbye. Come on, Matthews. It's your show from here on in. Sirens included. Okay, Marlow. Okay, enough. So we're on our way to the airport. We're going to catch her. Kill everything is great. But first, how do things add up? And... Yeah! Mooney, take it easy. Five seconds, more or less, never yet turn the trick. Okay, Lieutenant. Were sorry. you saying something, Matthews? Yeah, yeah, I'm saying I don't know which end is up, Phil. Look, Lester Carney killed his wife, right? Right. Why? Because he wanted her out of the way so that he and a cheap little monster named Carol King can live happily ever after. Oh, divorce wouldn't do that for him, huh? No, Mooney! No, I don't think so. Probably because Julia Carney had a real tight grip on the purse strings. Oh. Maybe something more, like it's not very nice pass for a guest. Yeah, yeah, but the purse strings, the money, that's where Bert Lawson figures in, huh? A bookie with a claim. No, no, blackmail. Now, I figure Bert Lawson knew about Carney and Carol King. He must have stopped by once to pick up or pay off a bet at the right time. Yeah, and from there, what? And from there, the team of Carol and Lester kill Lester's wife. Yeah, which we've covered. But yeah. not in detail. Now, listen. You see, after the murder, Lester planned to kill himself. Yeah. Or at least make it look like that. Yeah. A suicide note, the Mulholland studio burned down the works. Yeah, yeah, and the body we found. The That's an added attraction. Bert Larson included in the last minute. What? The wife and then the blackmailer? Ah, you're getting it. Drugged while drinking at Carol's, where he thought that he was going to get paid off in money, yeah. then up to Mulholland Drive, ring watch, and flames added. Oh, and then, then out here at the airport, headed for Manila. Lester Carney. Uh-huh. Hey, Mooney. We're getting close. You better kill a siren. Okay, Marlon. Now, Phil, how do you know all this? I mean, the switch. You know, what makes it so? That piece of metal I burned my fingers on, Matthews, yeah. it was a tap from a shoe. And Bert Larson wore taps. The rest of it adds from there. Yeah, including Connie at the airport now as Larson. Sure, who'd be uh, looking for a beat-up second-rate bookie who decided to leave town? Aside from a nephew, that is. Yeah, aside from a nephew who tried every place but the airport. Uncle Bert couldn't stand planes. The brakes, Matthews. Oh, here we are. Yeah, just you and me and Mooney and a killer. Aren't you coming, Phil? Uh, no, I think I'll wait here, Matthews. I, I, I got some thinking to do. About the scum you sometimes meet in the night? No. About the kind of a kid I almost never meet in the night. See you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, come on, Mooney. Maybe our boy will make a break for it, I hope. Lester Carney didn't make a break for it, and an hour later when they picked up Carol King, it was the same thing. Each of them was surly, ugly, but they talked. So when I finally left police headquarters, where try as he would for Tommy's sake, Matthews had found it impossible to skip over Bert Larson's connection as a blackmailer. It was pushing midnight, and I was dog-tired. There was something worse than that when I was back on the corner near my office, walking toward Tommy Larson, who was untying a stack of fresh newspapers. Then the headline. Read all about it. Hollywood killer nab, blackmailing bookie, jealous wife slain. Hiya, kid. Hiya, Mr. Marlowe. Lieutenant Matthews tells me you had kind of a rough night. Kinda? When'd you talk to him, Tommy? After the first editions hit the street, I... I wanted to know if you were okay. The story didn't say. Pub... Publicity no good for your business, huh? Not much. Look, kid, did the lieutenant say anything about you? I mean... Oh, uh... I'm gonna stay with a neighbor. A friend of Uncle Bert's. Oh. He had friends, you know. He wasn't really bad at heart, Mr. Marlowe. Not really. I... I believe that. So do I, Tommy. He was just mixed up. Yeah. Sure he was. And you know why? The way he thought the world owed him a living, that's why. And I couldn't tell him otherwise. He... <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Marlowe. I... I gotta get going. Thanks a lot. You were swell. Sure. Extra, extra, Bookie and Babe slain in Hollywood Triangle. Two dead in Hollywood slaying. Extra, extra, nothing more pathetic than a kid, the first time he's really slapped down by life. We, the older ones, the tired ones, learn to roll with a punch. Because we've got time in our corner, watching us, counseling us, teaching us how to save ourselves, so that the final gong, we're still on our feet. But a kid... A kid steps into life's arena expecting to find his opponents all he was taught to believe they would be. But instead he finds the old one-two below the belt. But if here he finds a good guy, and there a great girl, the going suddenly becomes not so rough. The fight becomes worth it. If only to help the next generation of Tommies find their ring a little cleaner. And the brakes, not quite so tough. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. 
Script is by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Gil Stratton, Jr., Virginia Gregg, Wilms Herbert, Joan Banks, and Vivi Janis. Detective Lieutenant Matthews is played by Larry Dobkin. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with laughter on a bright morning, in a battle over a chicken, and got better as it went along. It could have lasted a lifetime, but it didn't. It stopped on a gray morning, with a little wishbone broken. Stay tuned now for Gangbusters, which follows immediately on most of these same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. A rough break for a kid who has a story to tell, one that's all too close to home. We found Philip Marlowe in a philosophical frame of mind with the kid on the corner. Actually, Marlowe was often in a philosophical frame of mind at the end of his adventures. That was The Adventures of Philip Marlowe from December 3rd, 1949, with the always convincing Gerald Moore in the title role. Gil Stratton, Jr., the newsboy, was also on Broadway in films and on radio as the boyfriend of my little Margie. Maybe best known in the long run, though, as a sportscaster. We're going to round it out this week with suspense, next here on Skywave Audio Theater. At the age of nine, Jackie Cooper became the youngest performer to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor. That was for his role in the 1931 film Skippy, having nothing to do with peanut butter. For close to 50 years, Cooper held the record for the youngest Oscar nominee in any category, he came from a showbiz family and got into showbiz, therefore, very young. Went through his parts, the little parts, and then became one of the members of the famous and popular Our Gang, and then went on to roles in major films. In more recent years, Cooper's most conspicuous role was as Daily Planet editor of Perry White in the Superman movies. Here he is as a man who gets in over his head fast very fast. Our story is called The Clock and the Rope. Here it is from Suspense of December 5th, 1947. Suspense. Produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. This is the second in a special limited series of five Friday night performances of Suspense at this hour. Suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are stories calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation, and then withhold the solution 
until the last possible moment. Tonight from Hollywood, we bring you Mr. Jackie Cooper as star in The Clock and the Rope, a radio play by Lewis Pollock. We trust that with this tale, we shall once again keep you in suspense. Would you like to hear the old story about the innocent man facing execution and his last-minute attempts to get a pardon and how it feels when he doesn't get it? Well, I can tell you all about it, because that's my story. There's a couple of different twists to it, of course. There always are. For one thing, it happened to me. Now I keep away from people. I keep away from cities and buildings. Buildings with the cells they call rooms and the doors that don't always open. I never button my collar. You'll find out why. I earn my living as a guide for hunting parties. Me, who couldn't find my way across a city park. I never sleep indoors. And I can't stand clocks. Most of all, I can't stand clocks. It happened so fast. I told him it wasn't murder. It was self-defense. Involuntary self-defense, like putting up your arm to protect yourself. But it didn't work out that way in court. That's the other different twist I told you about. They convicted me. They sentenced me to be hanged. And they hanged me. Nightman. My job wasn't hard, and to me, interesting. Sell a little gas, do the rough strip down for some repairs that had to be done the next day, take care of any transient overnight parking. Then this girl started dropping in for gas every other night or so, late. I liked her style, but I was too shy to say anything, and I guess she figured it. She'd sit with a sort of a little smile, half turned in her seat, and watch me while I filled the tank. Then she'd pay me and pull away with a funny look in her eyes. Like she was getting a kick out of the way I acted. Then one night, instead of pulling away when she paid me, she spoke. Oh, come on, come on, open up. Huh? Say something. I've been here 20 times. You can say a word or two, can't you? You know, hello, or it's a nice night, or it ain't, or... Oh, well, I, I didn't know that you wanted me to. <laughs> You're I, a I funny just... fella. I didn't look like I didn't want you to, did I? Or don't I know my looks anymore? Oh, Sure. Oh, I just... Well, can I get your windshield here? Tell me, did I hear somebody call you Hank the other night? I guess you did. My name's Henry. Henry Guilford. Did your girl call you Hank? Haven't you got a girl? No steady girl. Is that what you mean? I don't mean anything. Anyway, what would you be doing with a steady girl working here every night? Oh, I get one night off. Go to a dance or something. Oh, you get a night off. Oh, sure. Hey, say, you like to dance? I have danced. Well, I'm off tomorrow night. You ever go to the Arcadia? They got a good band there. Forget who it is this week. I'm sorry. Tomorrow night isn't my night off. Oh. But I get off at midnight, though. Well, gee, the Arcadia closes at midnight. All the big dance places close at midnight. Well, we, we don't have to have a big place, do we? Well, well, no. No. There's the Owl Inn out on Trapscott Avenue. They run late. They have a pretty good little band and booths and everything. That'll be fine. I'll pick you up at your job. No, I... I'm way at the other end of town. I have to drive my car back anyway. Uh, suppose I meet you at the hour. I'll be there a little after midnight. I'll be there. Okay. Okay, I'll see you. Yeah, see you. Oh, say, hey, what's your name? Bye-bye. 
of that next night, around 11.30, I caught the trolley going out along Trapscott Avenue. The motorman was old Steve Hoffman. He'd known me since I was a kid. And he ribbed me about my new gray suit, and especially about wanting to get off at the Owl Inn. Said I was stepping out in fast company. Well, we got there in about 20 minutes, and I started up the driveway, kind of thrilled at the idea of a midnight day. I was just starting up the steps to the inn when I heard voices coming from a grove of trees to one side. Seemed to be a quarrel, so I instinctively glanced that way and saw a man and a girl talking. The girl was my girl. She was saying something. Nobody, I tell you. Don't give me that stuff. I'll follow you all the way out here. Who are you meeting? Nobody. Who are you meeting? Oh, Joe, I told you nobody. Don't lie to me. Who are you meeting? Hey, come back here. Hey, what is this? Get out of my way, boy. Look, this is... It's you, Hank. Well, here, here, I'll help you up. I'm sorry I got in your way, but oh, I... Hey, so this is the guy, huh? Swell. Hey, now, what's going on? anybody, huh? Hey. Oh, oh, you... What did you hit him for? Joe's got oh, nothing to do with you. Get up, Hank, and run. This guy is just crazy. Crazy? Well, go call somebody. What? Now, wait a minute, fellow. Look, I don't know oh, what this you... is. Oh, Hank, will you Listen, get out of here? Run. You want more? Huh? Well, I got it right here for you. Hank, it's a blackjack. Will you run? Please. No, you don't. Now, wait a minute. Now, listen, fella, you're drunk. Here, put that away. Now, somebody's going to get... Let go. Let go of that. You don't grab Let go. You got him. You got him, Hank. Hit him. Hit him again. Hit him. Hit him. I did it, I guess. Hey, who is he? He would have done worse to you. We used to go together. Oh, I didn't know you had a steady fella. I thought we made our date. You didn't ask me. Besides, we were breaking up. He had no right to interfere. Well, what do we do now? I mean, about him. You better go. I'll take care of him. No. You mean leave him here with you? Please He's go, lovely. will you? There'll be more trouble if you're two of you. Go ahead, will you, Hank? Well, I'm going to leave right away, too. He'll be all right, honest. Well, okay, I guess. He'll be all right. Up, Joe. Joe? But he wasn't all right. He was dead. I knew about it hardly two hours later. She didn't come and tell me. The police came and got me. And they didn't learn about me from her either. They didn't know anything about her, and they acted like they didn't want to know. Sometimes you punks aren't as smart as you think you are. I wasn't trying to cover up, I tell you. I wasn't. I. Uh, why did you walk home? You rode out there on the trolley. Why didn't you ride back? I, I just wanted to think, that's all. Uh, sure, sure. Of course, you weren't thinking about how maybe the motorman wouldn't remember taking you out there if you didn't ride back. No, why would I do that? I've known old Steve Hoffman all my life. That I found out. I told you, you aren't as smart as you think you are. I'm not trying to be smart. Okay, okay, okay. So you hit him in self-defense and to save the girl. Now, uh, what's her name? Her name? Gee, I never got it. Mm. She never told me. You mean you had a date with a girl and you didn't even know what her name was? Well, yeah. Well, I asked her. I, I seen her often. Well, she didn't tell me. Are you sure there was a girl? Of course. Now, who did I have a date with? Maybe just with the guy you killed. I never met him before. I don't even know You him. just don't know anything, do you? Well, I'll ask you a very simple question. I'm sure you can answer this one. I'll try. How much money did you take off the man you murdered? How much money? Yeah, how much? But... Where is it? His pockets were turned inside out. You went from self-defense to help yourself. They pushed me around some after that. They'd take me to court and then back to my cell. 
Half the time, I didn't know what was going on. They gave me a lawyer, Mr. Hall, Bailey Hall. He'd do the talking. He kept asking for things like reduced bail, time for further investigation, continuances to find witnesses. Just sort of stalling all the time. I don't know why. I told him I didn't have any money for any bail and witnesses. There was only one I wanted, that girl. But he kept on, always trying to hold up things. And one day he told me I'd been indicted. I knew what that meant, all right. Then I had to go on trial for murder. That's bad, boy. I've done all I could to delay indictment and trial and hope that something would turn up, but we're in for it now. I wish you could give me something more to work on. What do you mean? Well, this, uh, this girl you can't even name. I can't go into court with just that. The police feel certain there never was a girl. There's no trace of her anywhere. Well, maybe she'll show up. Show up? <laughs> my boy, you've got a lot to learn. I'd hate to bet my case on a hope like that. That's all I got. Uh, whole case smells. A man is killed and his pocket's emptied. You admit hitting him. You talk about a girl who saw you hit in self-defense. You don't know her name. She doesn't show up. The police can't find her. It's a great case for the state. Mr. Hall, that's all I know. I can't help it. Uh, why, George, if you'd never mentioned the girl and just claimed self-defense or a fight, I'd like it ten times better. It's a, it's a girl thing that's so bad, it, it makes your whole defense uh, phony. Good Lord, boy, if, if you made up a girl, why didn't you make up a name? I've been all through that with the police. If you're going to talk that way, too, maybe we better forget the whole thing. Maybe you'll give me another attorney. You're none for all I uh, care. Easy, 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 boy. Sorry I piped off. It isn't a new attorney you need. It's a new story. Well, well, I'll do my best. Do my best. Yeah, 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 that's right. Guilford rode out to the inn that night in my trolley. Yeah, on my speak run. Louder, down. Please. Yeah, that's right. Guilford <laughs> rode out to the inn that night in my trolley on my Face run. Face the down. jury, please, and talk louder. Oh, louder. Oh. Yeah. I, uh, I said I took Guilford to the inn that night. It was about 12.10. Uh, that's 10 after midnight, you know. Uh, car talk. That's yes. the way we talk around the barn. Uh, he got out and started for the inn. Yes, well, and, uh, did, uh, uh, just a minute. Did you notice anyone else around? Any girl, for instance? Girl? No. Nobody else. Uh, just all right. my friend Fatty Cushion, that's yes, all. That'll be all. We play pre-knuckle together. Thank you very much. Huh? Yes. Hmm? Defense may have the witness. And as soon as we started to talk to Gilford, he confessed to striking the blows. He talked about doing it in self-defense and about a girl he had a date with a witness to fight. Yeah. Well, now, Lieutenant, has your department been able to trace this girl whose existence is claimed by the defendant? No. No trace of her at all? No, sir. No trace of her at all. Beyond the shadow of any reasonable doubt. Now then, we come to the actual evidence, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. But where do we get the evidence? From the witnesses. And who is the state's principal witness? None other than the defendant himself, Henry Guilford. But... The defendant can prove his story. He has a witness. The girl who saw it all. The girl he saved from a bad beating. 
Would any girl be so heartless as to leave such a benefactor in the lurch when just a word would save him? Why doesn't she appear? Why isn't she found? But no, no trace of her. Not even a small-sized note. In other words, she is behaving exactly as you would expect of someone who is not real, but just the figment of a desperate man's imagination. Defendant will rise. Gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. What is your verdict? We, the jury, find the defendant, Henry Guilford, guilty as charged of murder in the first degree. Henry Guilford, uh, you I have... have a, a... Yes, sir. <laughs> Crazy. Sometimes I thought it must be just a crazy nightmare. Like when you're going to wake up and everything's going to be all right. I, I was innocent. And they were going to hang me for murder. Because they couldn't find a girl. One girl who knew I hadn't done it. And you imagine how that feels? My boss at the garage and the fellows who worked there days chipped in some money. I had an uncle in West Virginia who sent Mr. Hall $50 in cash, a promissory note for another 50 and I guess Mr. Hall put up some money himself for expenses. Anyway, he kept appealing the case all the way up to the state Supreme Court, but it didn't do any good. Kept coming back with the original decision sustained, Mr. Hall said. I asked him if he was going to take the case to the United States Supreme Court, but he said he couldn't. He had nothing to justify a hearing. Guess he meant everything was cut and dried. All this time, the courts had kept changing the date. The date I was supposed to be hanged. Now, all of a sudden, I, I knew there weren't going to be any more changes. The last date set was it. How do you suppose that feels? I think I started to suffocate right then. There was something growing in my throat that wouldn't let me breathe. Evening of the next day, McGill, the deputy warden, came into my cell with a couple of guards. Told me I was moving. I knew where. It was down on the main floor, a row of only three cells. These were larger cells, more light, more convenience. This was the last stop. Death row. Now, there's a team of two guards who live right in the cell with you the last few days. It's one time a prison breaks down and shows a human touch, I guess. Or else they just want to make sure you don't go ahead and carry out the sentence on yourself. Anyway, whatever it was, I was grateful. Because now I was lonely. Way deep inside myself, I ached with loneliness and fear. I was afraid. Well, not like a man, but afraid of a boy, a child's afraid. Who's going someplace? The last place. I was going alone. The thing you feel most the last hours is the time. The clock. Remembering how often you wished it would hurry so you could get off work or go out of school or see your girl or go fishing. 
Oh, you remember a hundred hours like that when six hours is all you got left? Outside, you know, they're watching the clock, too. Not like you are, but they're watching it. All the usual people concerned with an execution, doing the usual things. Your lawyer, the warden, governor, maybe, newspaper men, guards, the executioner. I know what every one of them was doing as they watched the clock that night. They told me afterwards. Now I... I'll never forget it. Clocks all over the state, ticking away my life. You know, you ought to get some sleep, Warden. It's only five hours away. I know. Oh, I wish I could lose this pain in my chest for a little while. I think I'll just lie down here on the couch. Yeah, why don't you do that, Warden? Yeah, yeah. Oh. oh. What time is it? Oh, it's coming up 1 a.m. Been feeling bad all day? Ah, not too good. I've got this thing in my chest. I suppose it's nervous indigestion. Could I do. Yeah. Had it a couple of weeks, as a matter of fact. Oh, I'm exhausted. This is a tough job, McGill. And every time it gets harder. Takes it out of me. <sighs> what do you think of young Guilford? Nice kid. Yeah. Yeah, nice kid. He sounds like he's... Well, that's not up to us. It's, it's not up to us. Well, I'll try and get some rest. Yeah. When shall I call you, Warden? Oh, make it an hour beforehand. Five o'clock. Hello. This is Bailey Hall. Yes, I'm Guilford's attorney. Look, it's four o'clock in the morning. I need... You're who? You're... Well, where have you been all this time? What? Yeah, now look, you're not just some crank that's after publicity. I know, I know, I know. It's for six o'clock. Uh, where are you? Well, wait for me. I'll be right down. We've got about two hours. <laughs> my reputation on it, Governor. This is a girl. At least it deserves a stay of execution. It's true, sir. Honest, I swear it's true. I, I, I've been away. I've been in Mexico. And you, you just don't read the papers there. I, I just hadn't heard about it till tonight, but it's just as he said it was. Self-defense. Uh, please, sir. It's after five o'clock now. Can't we uh, get... What about the money that was taken out of the dead man's pocket? I target? took it. I took it. I needed it. I didn't know he was dead. He, he was drunk. He was... I had every right to the money, honest. He, he'd been my husband, and... Well, uh, very well. Uh, Richards. Yes, Governor? Uh, type out a stay of execution on the Guilford case uh, for three weeks. Bring it in, and I'll sign it. You can take it down. All right. You better phone the warden to make sure, though, Governor. The boy's only got about a half hour left. Warden's office. 
Yes, this is Warden Barnes. What? Well, put him on, of course. Yes, Governor. Young Guilford? Oh, oh, you don't say so. Why, that's splendid, Governor. Yes. Yes, I'll let them know right away. Yes. Oh, McGill! Yes, Warden, I... What? Harry! Jack, come in here, quick. What's the matter? Something's happened to the Warden. Let me get him up on the couch. That's better. Looks like a stroke. Yeah, you better call the doctor, will you? Sure. Hmm. Oh, no. Well, never mind that. Call the doctor. Must have been the strain of this execution. Warden. I think he kind of liked the kid. What's the matter with his phone? I'm uh, afraid there's no hurry for the doctor. The warden's dead. Dead? Yeah. It's 5.30. I'll have to take over for the execution. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, gentlemen, please. Now, ten minutes to six, gentlemen. In a few moments, you will be admitted to the ground floor of Blockhouse A, where the scaffold has been erected and where the execution, which you are to witness as newspapermen and members of the medical profession, will take place. You'll find rows of benches. Please take your seats quietly in any of the rows except the first, which has been reserved for members of the medical examining committee. We ask you to cooperate with us in our duties and to respect the solemnity of the occasion by moving quietly and refraining from any loud conversation from the moment you enter until you leave. Thank you. The minister was reading from the Bible when the outer cell block door clanged. I knew it was time. They were coming for me. This was it, then. There was a group of guards. The deputy warden was with them. They opened my cell door. One of the guards came straight up to me. He was carrying a leather strap with a big buckle on it. I stood up. I felt him strapping my arms behind me. The minister stopped reading for a moment to say something. Steady, my son. We'll... we'll go now, Guilford. I started to say something to the deputy, but he nodded his head at the men and he started to move. The two guards who'd been with me in the cell stood back. One of them reached over and let his hand fall on my shoulder for a second. I tried to say goodbye. I walked and realized I couldn't breathe very deeply, though I wanted to. Just short breaths were all I could take. The deputy turned around once and looked at me. He seemed nervous. That bothered me. I wished he wasn't so nervous. And we got to a door in the corner. Through that, and another door that was already open. I walked through, and I was in a room full of men. But my eyes went to something else. There were steps just ahead of me. Unpainted wooden steps. They led to a platform, and above that, there was, I saw, the rope. I'll walk up with you, my son. Huh? What? 
was waiting worked fast. He moved me into position. The men in the room were blowing me now. Looking up, there was a movement among them. And one of them had fainted and his bed fell over. He landed hard. I wondered if he'd hurt himself. Then I felt something over my head. He lifted it and came down over my head. Somewhere inside of me, a scream began, but my lips were closed, and I was just saying to myself, hurry, hurry, hurry. Don't put any calls through here. We... What, Don? But you know better than to ring the phone now. Guilford's on the scaffold. What? Governor's messenger at the outer gate? Well, are you sure it's not... The trap is sprung. Miguel! Miguel, stop! There's a pardon! Stop it! Stop it, Miguel! No, a man doesn't always die right away when he's hanged. They talk about the neck being broken and death coming instantly. No, not always. Death doesn't come for a long time. For some men, it's nearly 20 minutes. For others, it may be less. But never under 12 minutes before the heart stops. You can check on that. Me? I was only up a few seconds. They cut me down, and the doctors worked on me right on the wheel stretcher that was waiting to carry my body out. No, I didn't lose consciousness. I sometimes wish I had. I sometimes wish I had. Uh... I had gone then, instead of being brought back to remember every bit of those last hours. There was a new trial after I was on my feet again, but I don't know what was said. I was free. I saw the girl, Judy. I know her name now, and I thanked her. Neither one of us knew what to say after that, so she just went. Yes, I never sleep indoors. I never button my collar. I don't like buildings, any building. It's got stone and steel and holds you in. I want to be out here where I can see the sky anytime I open my eyes. And I open them often. I think too much when they're closed. I hear the clock. The clock. Suspense. Produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Tonight you heard Mr. Jackie Cooper as star of The Clock and the Rope. This was the second in a limited series of five Friday night performances at this hour, which will present radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Jackie Cooper appeared by courtesy of United Artists. Appearing with Mr. Cooper were Kathy Lewis, John McIntyre, Elliot Lewis, Joseph Kearns, Paul McVeigh, Junius Matthews, Wally Mayer, Lester Jay, and Jack Crucian. Music for Suspense is under the direction of Lud Gluskin, with original music composed by Lucian Morawieck. Next Friday, same time, we will bring you one of the most remarkable studies in suspense ever to be presented in this series. Mr. Dan Durier will be our star in The Man Who Couldn't Lose. Don't forget, next Friday, same time, listen to Suspense.
is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. A nice kid, that Henry Guilford. That was Jackie Cooper with Kathy Lewis as the missing woman who can save his life in The Clock and the Rope. Suspense from December 5th, 1947. For a guy who didn't like clocks, Henry certainly was living by one for a while there. And that rope had some serious twists in it. That brings us to the end of the line for this week. Next week, with Christmas in the air, it's the Halls of Ivy and Dr. Kildare and other adventures in sound. I'm Norman Gilliland. Join me then, if you can, for Skywave Audio Theater. <laughs>